It's been exactly one month since we saw The Rise of Skywalker, and we're back to walk through the movie with our expectations, wish lists, and the realities that the film presented us with. Stay tuned for our breakdown of Episode 9, The Rise of Skywalker. Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I am your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to an episode that I feel like has just been waiting to be recorded. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's been on, I think, the tip of our tongues for so long, but we just needed a little hiatus honestly, to collect our thoughts and kind of let let the movie set a little bit it's before definitely. we dove really in. Yes. And what's interesting is that it we didn't plan this this way, but it actually has been exactly a month since we first saw The Rise of Skywalker. That, oh, wow. I know, right? Yeah, we, <laughs> yeah. we didn't plan it, but it just worked out that way. Um, we did have our, our three-year anniversary episode, which was really fun last week that came out. And uh, we got a lot of good responses from that, a lot of good questions that we were able to laugh about and answer in that episode. So thank you to everyone who participated in it. Um, We do have a survey, a listener survey that we put out with that episode. If you're interested in filling that out, it would really uh, help us out as we're planning for 2020. And we also announced that we're doing a newsletter in 2022. So you can also sign up for our newsletter through the survey. And we just got a lot of exciting things coming down the line for 2020. So you guys know where to find that information if you're interested. But we are going to be talking all about the rise of Skywalker today. So I think we have a couple of disclaimers before we start on this episode. Uh, Number one, Charlotte and I both have head colds. (laughs) So um, if you hear us sniffling or coughing, that's why. And we both have a lot of cold medicine in us right now, too. (laughs) Um, Number two, I have a squirrel in my apartment somewhere. (laughs) So if you hear me scream in the middle of this episode, (laughs) it's because a squirrel decided to be a guest on Sky Talkers. (laughs) Those are kind of the um, funny disclaimers, but I think the third and and probably most important disclaimer is if you've been following us online or listened to our last reaction episode when we had just seen the film, I think you probably know that Charlotte and I are not huge fans of The Rise of Skywalker, and we have a lot of different reasons, and, and part of taking so much time to wait and record this episode was about really sorting through Um, why this movie didn't work for us and trying to come to not just saying I didn't like it, but understanding really why we didn't like this film. And this is going to be a largely critical review and that feels really hard to say, but we wanted to put that at the front of this episode because if you had a really great time with this movie, I think that is fantastic. And I never, Charlotte and I both would never want to make someone to feel like if they have a different opinion than us on this movie, that if you're not critiquing the same things that we're critiquing, for example, that somehow your opinion is less than or you're not thinking about the film in the right way or, or anything like that, um, it we don't feel that at all. Um, but mm-hmm. that being said, if you did have a really good time with this movie, this, this may not be an episode you want to listen to, honestly, because that wasn't our experience and we're really glad you had your experience with it, but that's not going to be how we're talking about this film. Um, and we really just wanted to put that 
that out there. <laughs> um, it yeah. feels it's strange. It feels very nerve wracking to come on and have this this review that is going to be quite critical. And we do just want people to know that whatever your opinion is, opinion is of this movie, you're still a Star Wars fan, whether you loved it, hated it, fall somewhere in the middle. Um, but I think it is important to know what your feelings of the movie are and how you're going to respond to like what our overall opinions are. Because after The Last Jedi came out, we didn't want to listen to people who were going to critique that movie heavily. And we didn't <laughs> listen to those mm-hmm. episodes. <laughs> and I think that that is fine. Um, so I, I hope that wherever you are with this movie, you just kind of know what you're getting into with this episode. It's interesting because a couple of weeks ago, I was watching I was watching uh, review episodes for the series Voltron, the series finale of Voltron, which is an animated show, which we actually talked about when Resistance first came out. And I was a really big fan of that show when it first came out. And it kind of fell for me in the last couple of seasons, so I didn't actually finish it. But I know that it had a really controversial ending. And so I was watching some episodes, um, like some YouTubers talk about the ending of the show Voltron. And this one reviewer had this like perfect prologue to her critique of the last season of Voltron. And honestly, the way that she her her channel is called the Sin Squad, and we're gonna link it here and in the show notes. And the way that she talked about her feelings about the show and the way that it ended and kind of working through how she felt about it. It just like I sent it to Charlotte immediately, and Charlotte's never watched Voltron. And I was like, is this not how we feel? And she was mm-hmm. like, yes, 100%. So I hope this isn't like strange, but I'm actually going to read what she said in her video because it, it applies so much to how we feel about Star Wars and how it's made and the rise of Skywalker and like our feelings in trying to like think about this film. So I hope that's not weird, <laughs> but it, it really did just kind of speak to how we felt and, and anything that I think Charlotte and I would try to say on this same topic would really just be a regurgitation of her words. And I don't want to do that because I think she said it beautifully. And again, her her channel was the Sin Squad and she was talking about the show Voltron. So she said, quote, I feel like it's okay to critique things as long as it's done with respect because I do think that these people deserve respect. And she was talking about the creators of Voltron. One of the reasons I didn't want to write this review is because I care so much about what these people think of me. These writers, storyboarders, voice actors, they're my heroes. They brought me a show that gave me so much joy and inspiration during a difficult time in my life. The thought of one of them coming across my review by some weird twist of fate and thinking, ah, there's another person who hates me and thinks my work is crap would honestly break my heart a little. What What can I say? I'm a sensitive person and it makes negative reviews difficult. And this will be a negative review end quote. And I think that that just kind of sums up so much of how Charlotte and I feel about Star Wars, because we do have such great respect for the thousands of people that put so much work into these films, into whatever it is in Star Wars. And you guys know we love pretty much every side of Star Wars. And we know that there are people who are involved in these stories who, you know, follow us on Twitter. Some of them have listened to certain shows of or certain episodes of Sky Talkers as they do other um, fandom creations within the within the Star Wars community. And I never want to I never I I would never want someone who is involved in the very complex and complicated task of creating a Star Wars movie to think that I undervalue their work because I didn't enjoy this movie as much as I wanted to. And I hope that 
it doesn't come across that way because it, it's certainly not how we feel. Yeah, I couldn't have said it any better than the woman on the Sin Squad uh, said it. I think that that's exactly how I feel. I think it's such a miracle that movies even get made. And I will continue to be fascinated by the behind the scenes, the concept art, everything that went into this movie, The Rise of Skywalker. Um, I'm not writing it off. I think it's worth analyzing. And that's why we're here today. That's why we're going to devote, I think our notes are 21 pages, right, Caitlin? Yep. <laughs> it's just, it's so much. And uh, the way that we're going to do this review is we're going to go through the entire movie and we will contradict ourselves. We will uh, get sidetracked and we will jump ahead. I know it's going to happen. <laughs> and and I know that we're going to forget things. And I hope that you bear with us as, you know, if, if this is your first episode of Sky Talkers, as if this is your hundredth episode of Sky Talkers, I hope that you understand the point of view that we're coming from. And if you don't, that's also okay. That's completely fine. I think there's something to be said for listening to other perspectives on things that like on Star Wars, for example, of just hearing other people's perspectives and their opinions, especially on things where you don't see eye to eye. I think that's the great thing about the internet and just like the online community that we live in. But on the, in the in the same vein, I think it's also important to like know what is going – like what's the line for you, <laughs> I think. Uh-huh. You know, like we are all so invested in this franchise. It means so much to us. And especially like if you're still working through your feelings about Rise of Skywalker, the sequel trilogy as a whole, whatever it is, sometimes it just isn't a good idea to put yourself in the position where you're going to be listening to people have a very opposite opinion than you. And that doesn't mean that you – necessarily don't like them or think they're dumb or whatever it is. It just means that you're not in the place right now to listen to it, not because maybe you won't be able to later down the line, but it's also like this is this is your time. <laughs> listen to things that are either going to challenge you or are going to bring you joy or do both. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. And I think you have to weigh what that is with what you're listening to or spending your time on, I suppose. It's why I think so many of us in the Star Wars community have a hard time with groups like the Fandom Menace. It's like, why are you just spending so much time like living in something that you don't like? I don't know. Yeah. Like that doesn't make sense to me. Um, and I know for me personally, like it's been it's been really hard with the Rise of Skywalker because I'm the kind of person where I compartmentalize things that are hard for me <laughs> and I just like put it away in a box <laughs> and try not to think about it. But like Charlotte said, like this movie does have things to analyze. And so I think it's been really hard to like bring that box out (laughs) and have to (laughs) unpack it. And it's funny because I listened through our initial review a couple weeks ago. And I I remember you saying, you said towards the end, you said, I'm excited for us to, to like see it again and to dive into some of these things we're not sure of. And I think I said back, I'm not sure if we'll like what we find there <laughs> once we dive in. <laughs> and, um, I feel like that's kind of become my tagline as I've been thinking about this movie. Um, but again, this is all just kind of a disclaimer for, you know, know what is going to make you feel the best about this film, whether it's validation and that we have similar feelings about things 
or it's making you think about things in a different way, or maybe it's that you're not even going to listen to this episode because it's not for you. And any of that is okay. Any combination of that is okay too. Um, I think Mm -hmm. we just – Again, we just really wanted to put out like those disclaimers of this is like our overall feelings of this film and that's how we're going to approach it. And then you, the listener, can make the choice on if you want to continue on that journey with us here (laughs) or if you don't. And that is, you know, whether you push play or pause is really up to you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We just kind of want to lay all the facts on the table because I think like with things like our last Jedi review and even like so long ago when we went through the, the second trilogy, we had like things that worked for us and, and things that didn't work for us, but it felt, it always felt like a little bit more balanced or, or even like more skewed towards the things that worked for us. And honestly, for me, that isn't my experience with The Rise of Skywalker. It doesn't feel balanced like that or even skewing towards the more positive for me overall. And I, I think that that could change in time. I think it will take longer than a month. Um, I think it will be a lot of time for me. And that's okay. I, I, can, I can wait. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But that just isn't that isn't what this discussion is going to be about today. This discussion is not just going to be, I didn't like this. I didn't like this. I didn't like this. No, no, no. It won't be like no. that at all because I actually have a lot to say about certain symbols yeah. and implications and things like that. And that's our, our 21 pages of notes aren't. No, 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 yeah. no, no. no. It's, <laughs> Imagine all. If it it's not like that yeah. at all. But yeah. No. <laughs> but like we said, we, we did like part of taking this time to think about this movie was to work through specifically, okay. It's not just that I didn't like this. Here is why I don't think that this was a good choice or why this didn't work thematically so that there is reasoning behind it. And again, you don't have to like that reasoning or it's not your reasoning for why you did or didn't like it. Um, But I hope that it's never just going to be a straight blanket statement of, well, it was bad or, well, I didn't like it Uh, because it Star Wars is more important to us than to just blanketly say I did or didn't like something. So, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. And I would guess that it's just as important to you, the listener. Yes, exactly. So I feel like that has been a really long preamble about what this episode <laughs> is. Uh, so I hope that if you're here, you're, you've got snacks because we're going to be here. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think, I think we're going to go ahead and get started. And the first thing we're going to be talking about is the crawl. So who talks first? You talk first? I talk first. Oh my god, the crawl. Okay, so what did you think of the dead speak, the first line? I I, I don't mind. I like the dead speak. I think it's very it's uh I like the exclamation points. It 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 made me curious. <laughs> um Yeah. I, yes. It made me curious. And I didn't realize that it had been in Fortnite, right? Is that what it was in? <laughs> Yeah, before <laughs> this timeline, I, I feel like um, <laughs> I okay. So I I really like the dead speak. I think it's pulpy and everything. Yes. And I guess in Fortnite, which I suppose is a canon explanation at this point, <laughs> um, people across the galaxy heard the emperor speak. I actually haven't watched that Fortnite clip. Um, it's kind of hard to find. I guess it's on YouTube, but I I really it hasn't really been floating around. Um, so it is referenced here in the crawl. But the thing that's interesting about this crawl is that I feel like it still is confusing to me if the entire galaxy heard the voice of Palpatine and then later 
you know, 15 minutes into the movie, the confirmation that Palpatine has returned, said by Poe, to the Resistance, uh, it seems kind of redundant, given the fact that the first paragraph is about somehow Palpatine has returned, and then it's only repeated later. And I thought the point of the crawl was to kind of catch us up on what's going on and then kind of throw us in the middle of the story. And I feel like the crawl was written from a place of, you know, 20 minutes into the movie <laughs> rather than, uh, <laughs> you know, 20 minutes before the movie. Yeah, it's uh, it was kind of, yeah, yeah, the somehow Palpatine has returned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just doesn't really work, I think. The the word choices within the crawl, I think, are very interesting as well. The the ones that stand out to me where it says where Kylo rages on uh, to, to find Palpatine in order to snuff out any threat to his power, I think, something like that. The, the term rages on is very interesting. And this might just be the fact that like you and I have a very biased viewpoint on Kylo and I'm willing to accept that interpretation um, mm-hmm. or that reasoning behind why this doesn't work for me. Um, but I don't think that he's super ragey <laughs> in this movie. He, I would think the only time where you could really ascribe that uh, emotion to him would be in that opening like two-minute sequence on Mustafar. And I think that he seems quite calm and collected throughout most of the film. Obviously, there are moments where he's kind of angry but i don't know if i would describe him as raging on hmm. i don't know if i agree with that i i feel like he is i don't know i i don't know if i agree with that i don't know if i disagree with that i do think that he was raging on mustafar i think that moment of kind of quiet after he's kind of mowed down all the <laughs> cultists on mustafar kind of uh says that he's raging um, I think that that term itself, the word raging on is or rages on, I, it's kind of fun. Like I, like like the dead speak, it feels sort of pulpy and kind of spooky. Uh, and that's where I agree with you in that I don't think that Kylo Ren is kind of spooky. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, 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 and, I totally agree that he's raging on Mustafar, but I, I don't think he is for the rest of the film. Yeah, yeah, you don't actually see any sort of, uh, I guess you kind of do, but not necessarily. I, I was going to say you don't see any sort of The Force Awakens style temper tantrums. And I stop myself because of when he throws that one board member on the ceiling. But even that feels sort of controlled in the way yeah. that it's just on, like thrown straight on the ceiling rather than, you know, a thousand lightsaber strikes on a panel. <laughs> Death by a thousand deaths. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah. and then um at the end it says palpatine is coming as a threat of revenge but i'm not really sure who his revenge is on <laughs> is and and we're definitely going to be talking about palpatine's plan later on in the film but this was kind of the coming back to the crawl it was like who is he who is he seeking revenge on i guess i guess it's the skywalkers but he doesn't really talk about that or he doesn't really that's not really a part of his plan or his motivations. How cool would it would it have been if that really was his ultimate revenge? There are a lot of what ifs in this movie. <laughs> yeah, there are. And we should talk them through because I think that Pal- if Palpatine was like, I'm back and I'm going to destroy the Skywalkers, I think that maybe that's the implication. And I guess that's sort of exactly what happened. And I... Despite the fact that Ray takes the Skywalker name at the end, I think that it's 
it is quite interesting that if if the crawl sort of implies that his revenge would be on the Skywalkers, I wish that that was a little bit more personal because I think that would have been really interesting, given the fact that Palpatine's kind of galaxy wide domination throughout the prequel trilogy and the in the original trilogy was more about power and not necessarily in allying himself with people who are the most powerful like mm-hmm. Anakin. And I think that that is sort of like a grand image of power. And I think that if his return in the sequel trilogy could have been a little bit more personal, um, I feel like I would have felt that a little bit more. I think that perhaps they tried to do that with Ray and that sort of being personal, but I still didn't, I don't think that narrative thread was exactly there in the way that you say it is um, with that line in the crawl yeah yeah this crawl overall it it does feel pulpy which i can appreciate but it yeah i don't know if it's meaningful Mm -hmm. that's true okay so next we have kylo on musafar which the planet is healing from post vader immortal which uh plug moment shameless plug we have an interview (laughs) with the creators of vader immortal (laughs) How many times are we going to plug this interview? Like, I'm really people are I'm so really proud of that interview. <laughs> I am too. It's just it's really funny. I feel like we talk about it all the time. I yeah. It, uh, this is so cool, and the fact that we only learn that this is Mustafar through the visual oh, dictionary me. makes me very disappointed. Yes, I I think that this I. <laughs> remember you were i think i guess this was when we found like when the visual dictionary started going around i remember i was walking to the store just fuming about this like about how this was musafar and we didn't know it i left you like this really long voicemail where i was like this is just insane (laughs) that this is musafar and we didn't know it um it's I think it's frustrating because Musafar is such an important place in Revenge of the Sith and Rogue One really had a great time showing off that it was Musafar. But then it's like it's so glossed over in The Rise of Skywalker that we don't even know that that's where we are until you read about it in The Rise of Skywalker. And I don't think that it makes sense in the timeline or it's not given any explanation why the Vader cultist there might not idolize Kylo as he is their grandson or Kylo like showing off that he has the Vader helmet, ergo give me the wayfinder. You know, there are a lot of ways that this could have gone. And I think when we first found out it was Mustafar, I was like, imagine if if this is where the story had ended, if it ended on Mustafar and this is where Kylo, where Ben was able to bring Rey back from the dead. You know, that would have – because Musafar symbolizes where Anakin lost everything and it's where he basically imprisoned Mm -hmm. himself too. Yeah, the immolation. Yeah, and it's – And I feel like you're so right. You're so right. (laughs) It's – it's – oh, man. It's such an opportunity miss. I was thinking too, we've been getting a lot – pieces of the art of book have been coming out too and we've been hearing a lot – more about the Oracle, which was apparently an early leak. And this Oracle supposedly told Kylo on Mustafar about the dyad, right? That he and Rey were a dyad in the forest. And I found myself thinking a lot too about, you know, just the implications of, of if the Oracle had been on Mustafar and, and, and had ever interacted with Vader or had just witnessed the events, the Revenge of the Sith, Rogue One, Vader Immortal, the Vader comics, all of these things. And then the Oracle is talking to Kylo, Vader's grandson. It just, it would have been, there would have been so much room there for so much to have been unpacked and even explored in later canon material. I just, 
I don't know if this is one of the biggest opportunities missed <laughs> in the film, but it kind of feels like it. Yeah, I I do think that there's something there in terms of discussing what could have been of if this was at the end of the movie, if this was the location at the end or something like that. I think that there's definitely something there about the movie beginning on Mustafar rather in terms of like a reverse Revenge of the Sith where the movie ends on Mustafar. I think I think there is like we can follow that down the line of some sort of like meta understanding of Kylo's uh inverse redemption and how that uh, relates to Anakin. But I, I do think that there's, I don't know, it just moves so fast. And clearly there, there was a lot cut out of this, not only the Oracle, if that was on Mustafar, but um, in the visual dictionary, there's some lines about from Hux, which I'm like, there's so much missed opportunities with Hux <laughs> in this movie um, about how, you know, he has gone mad. I don't have the visual dictionary in front of me, but um, the quote is something along the lines of, you know, Kylo Ren has gone mad. He's chasing seeking ghosts. certain artifacts. Yes. Chasing ghosts. Like how cool really is cool. that? I, I love that idea. I love that line. And I it's it's obviously super cool enough to include it in the visual dictionary as like a full quote. So hopefully we see that in the bonus features because I think that that would be pretty satisfying. Overall, as the scene, though, I felt it was super rushed the first time I saw it. But subsequent viewings, I don't find it as rushed or as confusing as I did in the beginning. I kind of like the way that it's all kind of spliced together with the shot transforming from the Wayfinder to Kylo uh, navigating that red lane of through hyperspace or whatever that is. It's super cool. And I, I really like the visuals of that. Um, I, I think that it kind of starts us off on this like really exciting direction of what is he going to find? Also, it was really a joy to begin the movie with Kylo Ren. I thought that, I don't know about you, but I thought that we were going to have to wait for to see Kylo as we have in the past, I guess not really with The Force Awakens, but The Last Jedi for sure. And I uh, I don't know, I was happy to begin here in this like dark place. I think that we had expected that too, of, you know, beginning seeing Kylo Ren as a supreme leader who perhaps had gone mad like Hamlet or something. And that's something that we had theorized about. Yeah, I definitely liked starting the film with Kylo. I liked I liked the look of Mustafar too. I think that that whole sequence works really well to just show the, show the physicality of Kylo and his skill as well. Uh, it just, like on subsequent viewings, it falls short because I know it's Mustafar. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I know a lot of people won't have that experience because, you know, a lot of people won't know that it's Mustafar. Uh, but I remember telling um, a coworker who had had kind of like overall he thought that some things weren't great with Rise of Skywalker, but like generally he liked it. And I was and I told him that that was Mustafar at the beginning, and he was like, "What?" <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, that's Mustafar." He was like, "Oh, oh," <laughs> and then I felt kind of bad. <laughs> I was like, "Oh no, did I just ruin something for you?" Um, but yeah, on on subsequent viewings, it's a little harder. I think knowing knowing my own head cannons about what could have happened there, and I know that that's a me problem, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. but but generally taking that out of it, I do think that I like the opening of the Rise of Skywalker. I think it's I think it's pretty strong, honestly. 
especially before especially before you know what's coming <laughs> um yeah because I, I that opening is is pretty unique within the saga i think especially within the sequel trilogy of just kind of zooming right in on one character specifically on a planet in the middle of battle it just it is it is very energized and like i said i do think this is where kylo is raging and you do have that very frenetic frantic energy which i i did actually like a lot yeah. And I think that you kind of hit the nail on the head by saying that you're zooming in on one character, which gave me hope for the rest of the movie, given the fact that I was hoping that this movie would be more of a like a character journey and character driven movie where I actually think this movie is more plot driven than anything with some bright character moments. Um, overall, I think it's definitely more of a plotty heavy movie. But this beginning gave me hope that that wasn't going to be the case, despite the fact that um, we have a character who's searching for something to find something to find something else. Um, I think that while <laughs> that sometimes can get bogged down, I had hope for it in the beginning of this movie that it wouldn't get bogged down. Obviously, I think that it did get bogged down. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> So let's move on to talking about when Kylo enters Exegol, because I also think this is a really great scene. Um, obviously, it's a continuation of something that we were just talking about, but I really like the shot of him. There's some really great ca camera moments in this movie um, where the camera is below the actor, uh, especially when they're both entering Exegol. And I'm talking about Daisy and Adam. First, when Adam enters, or Adam, <laughs> Kylo Ren, <laughs> enters Exegol. Um, I think that shot is, like, before he gets the helmet, I think it's, I just, it's just really good. Um, he looks so resolved and determined. And you get kind of the opposite effect later in the movie when Ray comes to Exegol. The camera is below her, and it, it's like, it, it feels very trapped um, because the walls are the walls as she walks through Exegol are kind of uh, closing in on her. And I really think that this was a really smart camera design um, move. And I really actually like how the, the elevator situation, the platform of it all. I think some the people have compared it to a video game. <laughs> the, platform the platform of it all. Of it I think. All. I think it is sort of video game-ish, but it's no different to me than like Malachor and Rebels. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a, immediately the vibe that I got, which is another Sith temple. So I think that makes perfect sense to me, uh, actually. And I I don't know. I, I, really, I really liked the design of this part specifically. I remember when we, when we first landed on Exegol and I was like, oh my God, monuments. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, I think I said that out loud to you. I was like, look at all the monuments. I think it, it's very eerie. Um, I had mentioned before having this almost like horror vibe in Star Wars would be really interesting. And I think Exegol is the closest that we've gotten to that so far. I can't decide overall how I feel about the like strobe light effect on Palpatine. Mm. I think it works. But again, it's like that hard thing of like, can I separate it from everything else that happens there? I'm not really sure. But I think that I I like you were talking about like the camera work of things coming from underneath the characters. I did like that. I do like how Exegol is underneath and that and I talked about this in our one of our initial review or our Patreon kind of walk through of this film too of like Palpatine being underneath everything going on above him like mm. I, I do enjoy that kind of imagery and I think it worked really well for Exegol I think the like 
is it all one room? Are there multiple rooms? Is there like an information desk at the I front? So it's, you, it's a little... Like, where's the amphitheater in here? I'm not 100%. And I guess I don't need to be. <laughs> but it did feel like we moved from the entrance into like the vat of Snokes. And suddenly we were like in an arena. And I was like, because from the outside, this looks like a big block of concrete, you know? So I, I don't really know how the physics of it work, but that's honestly so low on my on like my list of, of Rise of Skywalker things that I don't even know if I can be bothered to care. It's interesting because in the beginning of this movie, I didn't really feel like Exegol was a clear set. Like it didn't take me out of the movie. But in the end of the movie, I did feel like it was a set. And I think it was because of what you said, where I just don't necessarily understand the physicality, the rooms, how one gets to one place or another. I think that there's a couple of visual cues that make sense, like showing how, you know, the the X-Wing and the TIE fighter are parked outside and then you have to go on the the um, the elevator and then the huge chain, which Ben at the end has to jump down because the elevator isn't available for him. <laughs> and I feel pain. like I I understand that. And I think that all those choices, especially from an editing standpoint, make sense because then I understand that like one has to go beneath. But I do not understand the caverns, the hallways, everything like that. And I don't think that's the worst thing, but I think that you can compare it to a set piece like the throne room in The Last Jedi, which serves on such a level of narrative. I, I don't know. I feel like you under it, it is. A, yes, exactly. And it also like the physicality of that scene really um, comes across almost on a level that you're not necessarily privy to until you kind of stop and think about it. Like the, the burning of that room, what it reveals the outside and how you're kind of in this, you're enclosed within. And then as you know, everything burns away, you kind of see this huge space battle outside. And I think that all those things, you understand where you are in the throne room. Yeah. Where I don't necessarily understand where I'm at in Exegol. In fact, I find myself, especially at the end, confused about its size, like you said, the arena and everything. And all that is well and good. I think that you can suspend your disbelief in a Star Wars movie, especially a space fantasy. And like, you don't have to, you know, open your incredible cross sections yeah. of <laughs> Exegol and understand everything. And I think that that's, that's totally fine. But I struggle, I think, on a metaphorical level to unpack it and think about it in the same way that I do um previous movies well, especially especially thinking about the last jedi and honestly even the force awakens and basically every well yeah because i think like especially in in kind of like a heist movie where you're you're going further and further in to any kind of place mm -hmm. there is a sequence of events where you're understanding we're taking the stairs here we're taking the elevator here we're taking this hallway here and like you were saying with Force Awakens and, and you know, I was thinking of Starkiller Base and how Han eventually gets to that catwalk with Kylo. It's very mm – -hmm. like it's pretty clear the path that he physically walks on, you know, and not, not just like the catwalk itself. <laughs> but, you know, them being outside, them getting in the door, them planting the, um, ex the detonators and then him being behind the pillar and then seeing Kylo out in the catwalk. Like I understand even though I don't have the whole – I don't have a floor plan of the place – 
I understand how it works. And even with something like the Colossus and Resistance too, you know, the best piece that piece in Star Wars, um, it, even though I, I still don't have a cross-section of the Colossus, it's very kind of clear, you know, when we're on the the deck of the Colossus, what that means. When we're in the bridge of the Colossus, what that means. Um, like everything is pretty laid out and, and Exegol – really isn't. Uh, and then you, if you even compare it to something like Malachor, which is of a similar shape to Exegol, the way that the characters move in Malachor, they're on the outside of it. And so the whole story is tracking of them getting higher and higher up until they get to the holocron at the top. Um, and it's it's very clearly marked. And, and Exegol isn't like that. And like you said, it's not it's not the biggest thing, but it definitely – the fact that like you notice it – Right. Something is not quite clicking into place. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that the scene even, I I think that the, so I guess this, this clip, we did not watch this clip before the movie. And our initial reaction, I have to say, I was really surprised to hear that the I've been every voice inside your head was said by, you know, Palpatine, Snoke, and Vader. I think that that was such a, amazing choice and i'm so glad that they did that but it's pretty bizarre that we don't get kylo reacting to this at all this kills me (laughs) yeah exactly i think that this is perhaps one of the biggest revelations of the sequel trilogy and you as someone who has been in phantom space for the entirety of the sequel trilogy the conversation about who was kind of, you know, talking to Kylo has been hotly debated. And we get a scene finally of Palpatine confirming that he was the grand puppet master behind the manipulation of Anakin Skywalker's grandson. And to me, that holds so much weight. It is extremely important. This is the Skywalker saga. And we have a character who has been manipulated his entire life. And Adam is such a great actor where you can watch the scene and you can kind of imagine that Ben Solo is internalizing this revelation a little bit, perhaps not even realizing it or, uh, you know, letting it sink in fully. I think that we can make that judgment and kind of, again, suspend our disbelief. But I don't think that we should have to do that because I think in any other story, I think that that wouldn't be true. Like, okay, (laughs) think about how angry Kylo Ren was when he found out that Snoke manipulated the bond between him and Rey. They killed him. He killed him. And you saw this, you saw the scene, you, you guys know exactly what we're talking about, that, that look of anger that comes over him when Snoke says, I stoked the bond. I think that something similar would have happened here if this line... I just feel like the line was an added line. Perhaps Adam Driver didn't even know that it was something that was being said during the scene, or else I know that he would have reacted to it um, appropriately. Because like I said, it is one of the biggest revelations in the sequel trilogy and fully shapes the way that we should look at Ben Solo as a character and how we should look at him throughout The Rise of Skywalker as well. And I think that it's the scene is filmed so strangely because you don't actually get a full shot of Kylo Ren in front of Palpatine. And I think that there's like, maybe they were just wanted to wait for the reveal later 
where you see the giant crane with Ray on Exegol. And I get that. I get that you want to save the the creepy, weird puppet master reveal for later. But that's that's not exactly where you should have I don't know I don't I don't I didn't really buy it because even like so much of the scene even is Kylo's arm covering his his mouth and I'm just like what was reshot what was redubbed it's very confusing and I've been catching up on a lot of leaks that I missed because I wasn't a part of that and I I feel like there was a leak about how Palpatine was going to kind of appear in this like old, almost infant Ugh. form. And I, I obviously think of, I know it's disgusting, but I obviously think of Voldemort, you know, returning back to his form. And I think that Star Wars could have done something similar to that and I would have bought it. I think you would have too, because it would have been super creepy. But I have to wonder if they were working on that and were like, we're not going to put that in until the end because it's it's something that we're kind of testing kind of figuring out and then they just kind of scrapped that whole idea and went with this version which is the same emperor version that we see later with ray i'm just so sad (laughs) that there isn't any exploration (laughs) of this line i think i think you've basically said everything that i could hope to say about it but i'll monologue about it for a little bit too (laughs) i i can buy that in the situation kylo wouldn't want to have any reaction to it in order to find out what palpatine wants you know uh but the fact that it's not given any time later on i don't like even if he had just paused for a moment too like when he was walking and just like whoa what you know um Mm -hmm. but i honestly i think this was the first inclination that this movie was not actually going to be about ben solo or kylo ren uh it wasn't going to be about like his place in the skywalker family and this i think is kind of the first the first nail in the coffin unfortunately uh nothing uh, like Exegol, I think, is an interesting set piece. It has an interesting design, but I'm never really clear when we're here about what anyone's motivations are, whether it's Kylo's, Palpatine's, or Rey's, honestly. And we'll be getting into that more later, and and obviously some things are more clear-cut than others, but everything just always becomes very muddled down here as far as who is doing what and for what reasons. And it is just really unfortunate that... We have this bombshell of a line, like you said, that has just been so debated and it's not given any time to be discussed. And I think that's probably one of the biggest critiques of this film as a whole is that nothing is given time. Like there aren't there aren't meaningful conversations in this movie. And I think that it for for us, like you were saying, this isn't a character driven movie, it's a plot driven movie. And that's where it falls short. And again, that is if you listen to any of our shows, you know that character is where we spend the most time. <laughs> That's what mm-hmm. we love the most. And so the fact that this movie doesn't do that really for any of our characters, I would argue, is really hard. And this this was just kind of the first example of that, I think. And it's still great. Like, I still can't believe that. And then it just makes me think down the line of like, okay, Palpatine created Snoke singular snoke plural how often were these snokes being brought in why is he growing and oh my god (laughs) (laughs) the snakes i don't know what episode that was but i think at some point 
like a, a year ago, probably more Charlotte, we were talking and Charlotte goes, well, a group of Snokes is called a sneak. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was the funniest thing in the world. And I guess that's canon now because we have a group of Snokes. And <laughs> I'm just not I'm, I'm just not really sure what the point is of Palpatine having created Snoke because I don't understand. This kind of goes back to the crawl of the threat of revenge. It's the threat of revenge against the Skywalkers. And so he created Snoke in order to manipulate Kylo. But Kylo kills Snoke, uh, and then he just tells Kylo to go and get Rey. Mm-hmm. I, I just, like, I'm not really tracking with what the deal here is. If anything, it would have been – and we talked about this too. It would have been interesting to see – I know I'm, like, getting ahead of myself into, like, the machinations of, of Palpatine's plan and everything. But, like, if this threat of revenge is against the Skywalkers, which makes sense, and and in that vein too, it's, like, it makes sense that Palpatine built Snoke in order to manipulate Kylo, in order to, like, kill the last Skywalker, and, like, that's that, you know? That I can track with. And then in that vein, he, like – gets Rey to basically be the bait to bring Kylo mm-hmm. in, whether that's to kill her or to kiss her. Palpatine doesn't really care. <laughs> he yeah. just wants to bring Kylo there. But instead, it's like Kylo is the one that finds Palpatine to get Rey. So then who is his revenge against? Because he's teaming up with Kylo, I guess. I don't... <sighs> I think this movie could have done something really cool by having Palpatine call Kylo out on his like softness towards Rey in the same way that Palpatine kind of called out, not kind of, definitely did call out Anakin's love for Padme and kind of use those two both against the Skywalkers. I think that that would have had some really great narrative parallels that would have worked. But instead you get a little bit more confusion about where now the narrative is really focused and centered on who is Rey, what is she about, And I guess Kylo also wants to use that information. And I think that I can, again, I can suspend my disbelief and kind of form a pathway to understand that Kylo wants to have all the information he possibly can get on Rey just so that he can further ensure that he can like do everything he possibly can to ensure that he's going to get her at his side. And the way that we kind of interpret that is that's sort of a, like a romantic notion of uh, he wants forever to spend like the rest of his life with Ray. And I feel like he wants to figure that out for himself. And I, I can, if I only watched all of the Kylo Ren and Ray scenes throughout this movie, I think that that's pretty clear, but I guess it, it think, I think it gets a little muddy when you, have so many characters and you have Palpatine's motivations kind of confused with Kylo's motivations, confused with Rey's motivations, confused with the galaxies, and then the Supreme Leader, and then the First Order, and then the Final Order. And all these things are very confusing when they all kind of butt up against each other, when I think the movie should have been a personal conflict that Palpatine kind of exploited. Um, For me, I think that would have been very easy to do, given what was revealed in The Last Jedi. I think that Ryan handed J.J. on a silver platter a force bond that was clearly Kylo's quote weakness on the dark side. If that was Ray, I think that you can throughout the entire star Wars saga. I think that even in the prequels, they kind of viewed um, love as a weakness that can be exploited. And by they, I mean Palpatine. And I think that that could have been totally carried through here in the sequel trilogy. And I really thought that it was going to in the rise of Skywalker, especially with the return of Palpatine, especially with lines like your coming together will be your undoing. But instead we don't get that. Instead we get 
Palpatine wants to use Rey for himself. And I think that it's really confusing to go back to your idea about revenge and understanding what Palpatine wants out of revenge. And I think that it it is not personal in that way in sort of the Skywalker saga. And of course, I think that you can kind of be like, oh, it's Rey's story though. But is it? Because I feel like it has totally... I feel like I'm totally ranty right now, but I feel like it has totally kind of pivoted to understanding how Ray fits in with like the last names of it all, where it was never really about that before. At least I did not interpret that in that way. And I think that it has totally muddled what we're supposed to think of the saga. In fact, I think that it has muddled the way that I view the Skywalkers as a family and the, the what they represent. And um, it's perhaps the main issue I have with this movie is kind of, it makes me view this family in a different way, which is really unfortunate, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that this is kind of like generalization, I think, because of course, Cheryl and I have been talking about this movie a lot. And I think that I, like I said at the top of the show, I'm a good compartmentalizer, <laughs> especially when it's things <laughs> that I don't like. <laughs> I am very good. I can put it away in a box and I will not think about it. And that's okay. And I think that it's very easy for me to accept that this is just not a movie that I like. I'm very okay with that. But Mm -hmm. then when – like the part that's been really hard for me is thinking about its implication – like the way that I interpret The Rise of Skywalker, its implications on the rest of the saga. Like, you know, we talk about doing, you know, another version of Weird Force stuff or, you know, like talking about – I remember last year we talked about doing like a retrospective on Luke at the end um, after The Rise of Skywalker came out and like his place in between – Luke and Kyle are in between Anakin and Kylo is like this this fulcrum in both of their lives and I'm like well <laughs> it doesn't really none of that was followed through on in the rise of Skywalker and I don't know if I like what the rise of Skywalker actually had to say about the Skywalkers and I think that's been the hard piece of it because like you said it does color how I view the family as a whole now and I think that that's really been the most challenging thing with this film because I can just say that I don't like the movie and it's not my kind of movie and that's okay but it being like a saga film how it fits in with everything else is something I'm still like struggling with and this like whole piece that we've kind of been talking about with Kylo and Rey and Palpatine like this idea of revenge and family lineage and and it did become like the trilogy became a question of who Rey's parents were like that became the thesis statement throughout every single film mm-hmm. and god like i mean god <laughs> um like even in the last jedi that was what they were talking about and um it felt like we had an answer and and we'll be getting into Ray Palpatine for the rest of our lives, unfortunately. <laughs> but definitely in this episode. And I just, yeah, I'm getting ahead, so I'm gonna I'm gonna stop myself. Um, but yeah, I just I think that that is the hard piece for me of this film is that I I don't know how to separate it from the rest of the saga yet, 
and like this this discussion of like Ray and Kylo and Palpatine and the Skywalkers and who is doing what for what reasons is kind of is kind of like a microcosm of all of the thoughts that I have about the Skywalker saga mm-hmm. as a whole. Absolutely. And I'm sure we'll touch on that further as we get deeper into the yeah. plot. So let's talk about light speed skipping because after the scene we go to which I honestly think was a really funny scene of Poe and Finn playing hollow chess with uh, Chewie. I thought it was funny. I liked it. I liked the whole implication that you know Chewie's been cheating his entire life. And yeah, I, I think this scene is so fun. I I do enjoy it a lot. I you know we knew you guys know our feelings on the trio. We're going to be talking about it. Don't worry, <laughs> but you guys know our feelings on the trio. That being said, like. Finn and Poe have amazing chemistry, and it was great. Yeah, Absolutely. it was great seeing them on the Falcon. I thought this scene is really fun. I actually really, it's definitely one of the funniest scenes I think for me. And like you said, I, I love the idea that like even though Finn and Poe are playing against Chewie together, they still can't beat him. And they're like, oh, like you know, we can't beat you. Just move, like make a move. And they're like, no, we're not going to turn it <laughs> off. And then he walks away, and they're like, all right, bye. And they like immediately turn it off. I think it's it's really funny. Um, yeah, I know a lot of people had a lot of thoughts about the light speed skipping, and honestly, this just this this kind of stuff just doesn't even register for me. Um, like, I it's very easy for me to suspend my disbelief about like the way that space works and how we get from place to place if we can even do light speed skipping. I remember when Last Jedi came out and there was the whole debacle about the bombs dropping in space. That never even occurred to me that that should be something I was critiquing or looking for you know um that's just never where my star wars head is gonna be so light speed skipping never i don't know that that's not something that i i feel like i can critique or praise in this mm-hmm. movie yeah i think it was fun i expected it to come up again um and yeah we'll probably see it in some other medium again which i'm excited to Honestly, I think that it was kind of fun and cool. I liked the monster aspect. And I liked when we went to that mirrored city. That was a total visual. It looked like a Ralph McQuarrie painting. It might have been a Ralph McQuarrie painting. And I really liked that. It was. It reminded me of Cloud City. I don't think it was. But I don't know. I thought it was kind of fun. I also liked Bulio. <laughs> so, oh, I liked Bulio. I was really sad when he died. Too. You know, that's Mark Hamill. Yes, I, I thought I couldn't remember if Bulia was Mark Hamill or the or the alien with Lando was Mark no, Hamill. It's it's Mark. Yeah. Anyway, I really liked Bulio. I was very sad when his head showed up on a table <laughs> a few minutes later. <laughs> I was pretty disappointed that the planet that they go to to get the information from Bulio, which I think is one of the coolest designs, that ice planet, um, I with the mirrored effect. I was pretty disappointed that that didn't end up being Exegol, just because I think that that was such an amazing design. Like first you have, I think that the, there's a lot of imagery in this movie, and I know that this this comes from an art design perspective. So I feel like like a design team perspective. So I know that these were definitely thoughts that were going through their mind when they were designing these, drawing these, and everything. But this implication that you have. Um, like mirrors and mirror images in Star Wars, especially the sequel trilogy, is such a huge theme. So here we have, you know, them light speed skipping into this city that has like weird refracting cityscapes. And then you have this planet, which we have talked about in depth on our trailer review. Um, 
of this like mirrored look. And I think that it was really kind of indicative of the themes that were going to be brought up in this movie. And I don't think that's totally changed at all from looking at the sequel trilogy as a whole. I do think that Ray and Kylo are mirror mirror images of her, um, of themselves. And I think that that is totally reflected in the mirror cave that, you know, Ray goes into in The Last Jedi. So I like to see these kind of thematic, uh, like artistic overtones kind of appear again and again and again. But I was disappointed that this was just a planet that we went to for like five seconds and then left because I really liked it and I thought it was really cool. Yeah, I just wish it had been something yeah. more. <laughs> yeah. But again, <laughs> this is this is one of those moments where it was like, well, this was talked about in the crawl. I don't understand why we need to have a spy to go through Bulio to deliver something to Poe and Finn, where apparently the entire galaxy has heard the dead speak. I don't understand the difference. And yeah, it could have been it could have been some other piece of intelligence. Yeah, I, I think it just I am um, confused a lot with this. It just feels um, in a lot of ways, I probably would have started this movie with a journey to go to Pasana or even on Pasana uh, rather than where we saw it begin. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so. We move on to Ray training with Leia at the Resistance base. The Leia stuff is so hard. Yeah. <laughs> and I I think it's so hard to critique the choice that they made with Leia because anything was a bad choice because it's a bad situation. I don't know. I just – I – the first time I watched it, I was cool with Leia training Ray. I liked her watching that, watching like Leia, watching Ray go through the obstacle course and, you know, she's lifting the rocks and herself and BB-8, you know, like that whole thing. But then finding out what we find out later that Leia knows that Ray is a Palpatine and like can train Ray but doesn't train Ben, it just like – Again, it, it lessens it for me, mm-hmm. just like the way that – like knowing that Kylo's on Mustafar at the beginning, that impacts my subsequent viewings of it. This also impacts how I feel about Leia training Rey. I think it's – I just like – I don't know how to feel about it, you know? Like why we could train Rey knowing what we know about her, but we can't train Ben. Yeah. It just like it doesn't it, – it doesn't make sense to me because – I think one of the coolest things about – one of the coolest and one of the realest things about Leia's character that did not get any screen time in the sequel trilogy, and and it, I think it should have, is the fact that she never really did come to terms with her lineage. Mm-hmm. And that's such an interesting tidbit about her given that she knew Vader growing up. Obviously, he blew up Alderaan in front of her. Um, she was adopted by Bale and Brea. She – rekindled with her brother, you know, married Hans. Like, there are so many interesting things about her story and the fact that – and, like, we admire her so much for so many different reasons. But this piece of her that she could never come to terms with was not her force sensitivity but her lineage. And the fact that that is, like, such a theme in Star Wars of where you come from. And she never really – I mean, maybe she did in the end. But what we know of her so far is that she had a really hard time with it. and obviously was scared enough about it that she sent Ben away. And we've talked about this a million times. It's not because Leia didn't didn't love Ben, right? She just didn't love Ben in the be- like and how he needed. 
I don't know. And like, and if she was still so upset and couldn't come to terms with Vader as her father, knowing that Ray was a Palpatine and likely knowing that Palpatine is the one who manipulated her father in the first place and set that whole ball rolling, you would think that she would have even more hatred for Palpatine than she did for Vader, right? Mm-hmm. I just th- like this whole chain, and I know that I'm probably going too much into my head about it, but I also don't think I am too. It just it it's really hard for me, honestly. I think that the implicate it's it's tough because anything that would have been part of Leia's story had to be recycled from something that came before, and because of that, you kind of stall a little bit on the idea of finishing Leia's story and getting her to resolve that. I think that that was part of the point of the sequel trilogy, and I think they were going to show it through um, Ben. And again, this is something that we've talked about at length. I think that what J.J. and Chris Terrio thought that they were doing was by accepting and seeing the spirit of Rey and how good her spirit was, despite being born into uh, like the, the Palpatine lineage, her accepting her in some way is supposed to be anal- analogous to her accepting her dark lineage as well. Um, I don't agree with that, but I think that's what they thought they were going to, that, the, that they thought they were doing. The intent. The I think that was the intent because I think the idea of what happens at the end of laying those sabers to rest in Tatooine, which is... Uh, honestly sort of baffling to me and we'll again get into that later i i think that that is sort of part of it of sort of this understanding of like the dark the dark past of what you come from and like returning to that place i guess i guess um and i think that that was supposed to be shown through ray and i think you can make those narrative links in your brain I just don't think the movie goes that far to give us give us that entirely. And I think that that could have been fixed perhaps through some Luke Skywalker dialogue. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like we had time with him. He could have talked about that. Yeah. And I think that that was probably a missed opportunity given the fact that you had Luke talk about Leia's past. Um, and I think you could have had that there, especially in the tra- training uh, training flashback. I know that that whole thing is rife for novels and comics and everything, and I am eager to dive in, but it is interesting that there's so many things in this movie that are kind of left on the writing table that have to be put in sort of ancillary material to help us understand sort of character motivations. Like the maybe one of the most egregious sins is understanding that Kylo did not burn down Luke's temple and will mm-hmm. never got any sort of um revelation that that's what happened but that's what the kylo ren comic that is happening right now tells us and i feel like they took the focus off of which sure that's what they wanted to do that's what they did they took the focus off of revealing that truth but by recentering the story as ray finishing luke's journey and you know also leia's journey i suppose um it's interesting that that truth was never brought to the surface. So back to where we first see Ray, I do think I was struck by the image of her floating with with the the rocks around her. I think this was like a good callback to the whole uh, moving rocks situation. Mm-hmm. I agree. 
And I also think it, she looks like Prime Jedi in that moment. That's the first thing that I thought of. I think I said that to you when, when we were first seeing it. Yeah, you like, did. Yeah, she looks like Prime Jedi. And I think that's the intent. And I really like that. I think the wire work is a little like, oh my God, I see the wires. <laughs> but it's fine. It's okay. I'm going to move past that. It's it's okay. And I think that I really like blow this. Right past it. I'm just going to blow right past it. Blow right past and it. I like her idea of her training regimen is really interesting because it is pretty aggressive and I like that she does it alone you get the sense that she's run this training course like a hundred times and but you get the sense that in this moment is the most aggressive that she's gotten um I think it's I don't know I, I really liked it I liked this idea of her channeling this like darker part of her I don't necessarily agree that we needed a training montage at all like at all but I do think <laughs> that there's this this good moment where she kind of lets the battle be the biggest part of her in the same way that she does in The Last Jedi when she is going against that rock <laughs> and slices the rock in yeah. half I think that she pushes it too far and that's the moment where you know there's that sort of like shared vision aspect uh with Kylo when he's trying to touch the helmet which again is another interesting moment if we go back to our conversation about like there was no resolve about uh, Ben realizing that um, all the voices inside of his head were Palpatine. I think that there's this moment here where perhaps he's touching the helmet, trying to hear those voices. Uh, it, I am still slightly confused because instead he's just haunted by the visions and the shared visions that he has with Ray, um, Ray's family leaving her, and then also ben um killing his father and all all these things right and then i guess the vision of of ray on the throne even though you don't see Ben, <laughs> it's okay <laughs> not over it i i liked this idea that like if you push hard enough um like a dark vision will happen and in fact she ends up hurting someone and that someone is bb8 and she feels immediately sorry about it and is like oh, oh like oh my god i'm so sorry and like helps bb8 I actually really liked this. I also thought the sound design of BB-8 was making was really perfect. It was, I think everyone in the theater was like, oh, oh my God. Oh no, the yeah. tree off of him. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I, I liked it. I think that, I think the first part with her like levitating is really interesting. I think it was cool to see her doing something that I think a lot of us consider, you know, advanced force technique. What was I think one of the few things I guess is kind of half followed through on in this movie is in the beginning when she is levitating and she says – I forget her exact line, but she's basically saying be with me to the Jedi Masters. She is saying be with me. Is she be with me? Uh-huh. And then she's just, oh, they're not with me. And I think that – this is thing I, I thought we'd get into later, but I think – I don't really know what this movie – like I don't know why she needs them to be with her. Yeah. Because – I don't think like we haven't seen any other Jedi need to do that, and I am I am one hundred percent okay with there being new uh, force powers. Like we had never seen like the force bond in other films or force projection, and the idea that like the Jedi need to be with her we've never seen before either, and that that's okay. But I don't know like why <laughs> we need that, and I think. One of the ways that this film falls short for me is because I'm not really sure what it is saying about the Jedi and the Sith. Like, we don't have this – like, I'm jumping all the way to the end here. But at the end, Rey is a Jedi 
And okay, like what is she going to do with that now? Is she one singular Jedi? Is she is she taking a more nuanced approach of the Jedi as a whole? Because we know that the Jedi were not all bad, but they weren't all good either, the things that they did. And I feel like we get close to that understanding in The Last Jedi when when Luke says, you know, we it was a it was a Jedi who trained and created Vader. And then Ray says, but it was a Jedi who saved him, you know? And I remember we love that conversation because it's like, oh my God, it's both. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because that's what the Jedi are. They were complex people, a complex organization that lost its way. And I don't – and like this – I feel like the Rise of Skywalker just throws around the term Jedi and Sith willy-nilly. <laughs> and <laughs> we don't really unpack what it means for Ray specifically to be a Jedi, to be the Jedi, whether it's prime Jedi of this new generation or – starting a new school, how is she different so that the same mistakes aren't going to repeat themselves? And this this thing of be with me, I think, okay. But then it's never, okay, why do we need them to be with her? Is there like is there something they're supposed to be showing her? Like some some thing she hasn't discovered yet? Is it is a pow is it a power thing where they need where she needs their power and support? Like she does at the end. I suppose you could infer that from the end, but I don't really think that it's done well or well enough, I suppose. It is done. I don't think it's done well enough. I think there should have been sort of a revelation or something. I think that you can argue that it was having her rise, um, but I do have to assume that she would have found that strength inside of herself, especially as someone who had lived alone for most of her life and Talk herself else, what everything everyone, she know. Everyone else gets to have like the strength from within, but I know not. But Rey. she has to have the voices of the Jedi. They yeah, that's the only way. Basically, nothing to her. No, like, um, they're not even in that book because th- those books were already written. I don't understand it. I don't understand it. <sighs> okay, so back to maybe my mm. least favorite line. Oh, there's so that's a competition. <laughs> But this one is I will earn your brother's saber one day. Ooh. I, I there is a way to interpret this as she doesn't want to take up the mantle of hero because the odds are too far stacked against her. I get it. I think that's what they were going for. But I don't think it works here because the saber specifically called to her and she earns those pieces. It's hers. They've done such a good job of rebranding the saber to raise saber and it was hers the cosmic force chose her she's an instrument of the cosmic force she should this is her saber like it's so hard because i i really do feel like this is one of those moments where i was like this movie's written by a man who doesn't understand how important it is for the saber like Excalibur to call to Ray, and they put so much emphasis on this like idea that the saber, which has never been that important in the past Star Wars movies, is so important in the sequel trilogy. It was so like it was the maybe legacy one of the, saber, the legacy the, saber, like the, the legacy saber. But I have to say that I think in terms of the 2010s, one of the greatest moments in cinema was when the saber flew into her hand. And mm-hmm. I feel like they undermined it with this line. They and did. I don't think I'll ever get over it. Yeah, I. you're right. There's a lot of competition in this movie for ho- hurtful lines. And this is definitely 
near the top of the list. Yeah, I just I remember there being so many arguments online. I think it was before The Last Jedi came out about how they were going to be branding this saber. And I remember specifically Pablo Hidalgo tweeting that like everyone at Lucasfilm considers this Ray's saber now. Mm-hmm. And like it's Ray's. But suddenly now she has to earn it. I I don't her, her brother's saber. Her brother's where saber. Where I'm just like what? <laughs> Luke like, hardly used that lightsaber, but okay. Yeah, and like Luke's most <laughs> Luke's legendary moment, the moment where he is at the end of his hero's journey, when he becomes the legend that everyone remembers him for, is with a completely different lightsaber. <laughs> <laughs> and this lightsaber is the one I I mean, I was a hundred percent for the legacy saber being raised because it does it brought the prequels into this movie, into this mm-hmm. trilogy, uh, which this movie doesn't do anything else. So I guess I should be grateful. <laughs> um, but I, I liked it for that reason, you know, of it was Anakin and the fact that the lightsaber was Anakin's when he fell to the dark side. He used it while like for evil purposes. And then it was brought back to his son and used for good purposes. It's when his son had this like, you know, the revelation of his lifetime that he was evil's uh, uh, son. You know, I thought I think that is really cool the movement of that that item through time again lightsabers i don't i don't understand why she has to earn it because she already earned it and if somehow this saber has you know force capabilities of its own to the point where it's calling to ray in the force awakens <laughs> well it does yeah because that's and, what and the, maz, the new about the kyber crystals yeah and maz says you know like that lightsaber, it calls to you. <laughs> I guess that doesn't really matter. <laughs> um, yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> it's really frustrating. It There's is. something I really do love in this resistance scene, though. I really like Ray's treehouse. Caitlin knows I've talked about this a lot. Mm-hmm. But I... I think that the – I don't even know if it's actually technically a treehouse or if it's perched on the hill or anything like that. I just – I'm going to call it a treehouse for lack of a better term. And I like that she has basically a desk full of books and different things she's tinkering with. And upon further inspection, you can see that her yellow crystal that is at the end is also there and she's working on her lightsaber, which I think makes perfect sense given the fact that she would – be reading the books there. I'm very, very thrilled that they brought back the books. I think that that was mm-hmm. kind of a worry that yeah, thank God. that wasn't necessarily going to. Yeah, honestly, thank God because <laughs> I think that it 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 really. I like this idea that Ray has this like private space of her own. That yeah. it, to me, it's just really similar to her ATAT um, in the Force Awakens, which I think was so homey and sad. I think in this this is like the stark opposite of that where I think it's homey and happy and among the trees and not in the middle of the desert. I think that yeah. it's a really good advancement for her character. And anytime there's a scene there, even though it's so brief that Ray spends any time there, I I really like this introspective moment. I like when she, um, when they're talking about Palpatine and Exegol and everything, when she runs back into her, her tree house to get her stuff and when she's there. And I, I don't know, I, I really just, I, I like it. I, 
I think it really works for her character. And I think this is one of those moments where I was like, yes, this is a good character development moment for her where, yes, she would have her own private space like this that's out in the open, that's among people, but also completely separate. Yeah, it does really feel like that is kind of representative of what Ray is in this movie. Like she Mm -hmm. has this place among the resistance, but she also has this thing that she's doing on her own too. I, I, I liked her sitting like crisscross applesauce in the chair and studying the books. Yeah. You know, it was just it's a cute scene. It's a cute scene. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay, so let's talk the about trio. the trio dynamic. <laughs> yeah. I think if you've listened to any of our episodes, you know that this is like my hill to die on. And if it's not your hill to die on, that's totally fine. But it is my hill to die on and like I put up a headstone. Um <laughs> the this opening bit, and again, I really liked Finn and Poe on the Millennium Falcon earlier. I thought, you know, they always have good chemistry. It's always a good time with them. And I thought it was really funny, like, R- Poe coming off and, and him, him and Ray having this, like, spat, basically, where they're talking about, you know, why didn't you come with us? What did you do to the Falcon? What did you do to Baby E? And he's like, you know what you are? You're a difficult man. You're just a difficult man. You know, and I think that that's all – like really cheeky and funny and good, but like with so much in this movie, it's just, it's not meaningful. And you and I have talked about this. I'm sure we mentioned it on one of our episodes about this film already, but like what conversation do Ray and Poe have that is not like an argument that is not like a little Mm. heated. um, And it's not about like the plan. Like they have, they have discussions with like all three of them where they're talking about what to do next as far as like where they're going next, what new MacGuffin they're chasing after. Um, but whenever it's just the two of them, it's it's just kind of argumentative. And even the way that Finn or the way that Poe talks about Ray when she's not there is very almost like jealous, uh, like of mm-hmm. her skill and that like people want her around and angry that she's like gone off on her own again. I just I don't. Like, yes, they all have great chemistry, but I don't really know what I'm supposed to be pulling from that when they're not having any meaningful conversations. Well, I think the whole concept of the trio, I mean, Poe and Ray met at the end of The Last Jedi, so it's just interesting, right? My, I have a friend who isn't part of fandom at all, and afterwards when we were talking about The, the Rise of Skywalker, I was like, what'd you think of it? I didn't say anything. And she was like, you know, I thought it was good, but I really thought it was going to put like the characters first and foremost, I thought it would be like really emotional. You know, my parents said the same thing too. And my friend was like, you know, we just spent a lot of time with Poe. Mm-hmm. And I, I was like, was he really a big character in the last few movies? And I think it's just interesting because the, he is, he is a big character in the last Jedi, but he's not a big character in the force awakens. So to sort of manufacture this like friendship that you're supposed to kind of walk into this movie thinking that they've been friends for forever. I think for the general audience, it's like, what? Like we just spent the last few movies, like with Ray and Kylo and then with Finn and Rose and then with Poe kind of taking on the mantle of leadership. And I think that to kind of act like they've been all jolly good friends this entire time could have worked. But I think that those relationships that were formed in The Last Jedi, some of them were kind of like left to the side, like Rose. <laughs> I think that it's even interesting, like going back to talking about the light speed skipping part and you see Claude. Claude. Caitlin liked Claude, right? You liked Claude. I, I, I thought Claude was yeah. fine. But 
let's be honest. Why is Claude there? Why wasn't Rose there? If Claude was fixing the panel, you know who could have done that? Rose. And I, I just don't understand why she's not a part of it. And it's just, it seems like a lack of continuity in understanding the characters. And I think that's where this whole trio dynamic comes in, where I really do think it is more headcanon than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a obviously a strong desire to put these actors together. I get it. I really do. I just wish I bought it. I don't think that they did a good enough job. I don't think that they wrote it properly for me to buy this like shared history in the past year. You start by an argument, which I think is fine. You know, in Empire Strikes Back, you start with Leia and Han having an argument, and I think that's fine. Um, But they also have a shared history. And I think that by starting with Ray and Poe having this argument about the Falcon, it's funny, but it's unresolved because we don't actually get them to talk about those tensions at all Mm -hmm. ever. And even, even the tensions with Ray and Ray and Finn aren't even realized either. You know, this whole idea of people keep telling me they know me, I'm afraid no one does that really never gets resolved. And I think that there's all these different, if you want to analyze all the different relationships with the, um, the trio, I think that, what works is the relationship between uh, Finn and Ray. It does on some mm-hmm. level, even though I don't think that it is followed, followed, like followed all the way through. And I think Poe and Finn work perfectly because they have an established canon relationship. Yeah. And their their introduction in The Force Awakens was one of the most magical things in The Force Awakens. They have instant chemistry, mm-hmm. and it, no wonder people ship them. And I think that it it is just. It's weird how we're supposed to buy that they've been friends for so long, but then they also have this like shared animosity um, that never really turns into laughing. <laughs> you know, yeah. like they haven't really they they don't really waffle between the bickering and the laughing and the bickering and the laughing like most friends do. Like I think that bickering is fine among friends. I think that some people operate that way. I sometimes operate that way. I know certainly you do too. It seems like you're calling me out. But I don't. (laughs) That's definitely how you operate. I just feel like it is, it's just weird how they didn't have a moment of reprieve where I could buy, I think that maybe they get the closest to it with the handholding after Kajimi or going to Kajimi. Um, but even then, Poe's kind of dismissive and kind of flippant over the handholding thing. It's not like, yay, we're in this together. I just feel like it is – I don't I don't know. I just – I don't really buy it. And I don't think the narrative really sells me on it. And that's just my opinion. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, the, uh-huh. the thing is, is that, you know, you referenced the – like Han and Leia in Empire Strikes Back. And like you said, the reason it works is because – Number one, it's the second chapter. <laughs> Number two, mm-hmm. they have this established relationship in the in I almost said the Force Awakens in A New Hope, and what and that ban that like that bickering that banter was already present in A New Hope, and then when you see it again in The Empire Strikes Back, it's something familiar. Like you recognize this energy between them, this dynamic, but now they're talking about a time period that we don't know about. And that's what's intriguing about that conversation is because it's the same familiar energy. Like these are still our same characters, 
But they're telling us like, oh, something happened on – I forget where it is, you know, but she told me her true feelings. And you're like, well, that wasn't in A New Hope. Like, <laughs> what happened, you know? <laughs> and the same thing like with Anakin and Padme in Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. Like they have this established relationship and the things that they talk about, like they have this familiar – well, not really in Attack of the Clones because that's a little different. But they – like <laughs> Anakin wants to have this familiar energy and Padme is like, oh, Annie <laughs> – that little boy on tattoo and like that's the conflict there but then in Revenge of the Sith it's like oh this is the first time they're seeing each other since he's been away for so long you know and and they're like the last time we saw them was their wedding day and I think that that's the hard thing with the with the with this being a plot driven movie and not a character driven movie is that they are so much acting like where we left them at the end of The Force Awakens not where we left them at the end of The Last Jedi Uh, and like like with Poe in particular Leaving aside my feelings of how he should have never been a main character, not for lack of liking him, but just because he took up a lot of time. Um, but, you know, his his journey in The Last Jedi was about taking on leadership and not just taking on leadership, but taking on responsible and um, like seasoned leadership and understanding what that meant. That was his whole journey in The Last Jedi was what does it mean to be a leader? I'm not being a good one. And like we all anticipated him to take up Leia's place, whether or not Leia like lived or died. I think even like that was always just kind of where we saw his character going. And he doesn't really act in that position at all in The Rise of Skywalker until the very, very end when he's just kind of filling the spot as the as like our point of view in the space battle like he has in all the other movies, too. He has that moment with Lando later on where he's like, is this what leadership is? And like he's a general now that Leia is gone. But he should have been at the Resistance base like being a leader for everyone instead of just light speed skipping around with Finn. I don't really understand why he wasn't. And and that again mm-hmm. like just plays into like where all of these like then he wouldn't have been like he would have still had a relationship with Ray, but it we wouldn't have been trying to infer this really meaningful, deep relationship at the same level that we have with Finn and Ray. Yeah. I agree. I I feel like it is it this new relationship muddled what was established in the past. Yes, a hundred percent. Okay, so moving on because somehow when Palpatine has returned, somehow Palpatine returns. It, it maybe is the funniest line delivery. I think that Oscar Isaac is just so exasperated. He, yeah. It's he just doesn't know what to do. He he could have delivered that line in his sleep. It's just so funny. <laughs> um, I also think it's you. You get the the line by Beaumont, Bob Beaumont, who's like the dark side, cloning secrets only the Sith knew, and I think that's as much of an explanation as we're going to get about how Palpatine returns. <laughs> I'm okay with this. I I feel like this is kind of perhaps a controversial opinion about like not finding out how Palpatine returns. I I feel like I've been around Star Wars enough that I know that people can always return from the dead. I don't necessarily need like a full on scientific explanation about how it all happened and everything. And I know someday we'll get that explanation and I'm willing to be patient. But I do think this line is funny <laughs> where I'm like, is it is it the dark side? Is it cloning? <laughs> cloning? What are the secrets of the Sith? No, because if it's if Palpatine's a clone, 
Is he actually Palpatine? Did we actually destroy Palpatine at the end of this movie? What's going on? By the mention of cloning, I'm just like, what is real and what is fake anymore? Because you have clone Snokes and making Snokes. And I'm just like, why why are we bringing back cloning? Why? Pickled Snokes. (laughs) So gross. Half a Snoke. Okay, and then one of the other really hard lines... In this film is Mm -hmm. uh, Leia or Ray saying to Leia, I need to finish what Luke started. I have a problem with this line just based off of the fact that I think it's obviously a a callback to Kylo Ren saying, I'll finish what you started about Vader's journey. And I think that's fine. But I don't like the implication that from this moment on, we get a link to Rey completing her own journey, but it's not her own journey anymore. It's completing Luke's journey. This is her trilogy, and I just don't think that it needed to have anything to do with finishing Luke's yeah, story. Luke, if Luke's coming back as a ghost, he can finish his own story. <laughs> I just – I feel like – I just don't buy that this is, like, personal to Rey. This isn't. This yeah. is a, By saying that it's finishing Luke's journey, I can't help but think that JJ's own hubris got in the way. I mean, you think about all the things – that he said about how every time they brought Luke Skywalker into this picture of um, in The Force Awakens, he mm-hmm. kind of took over the whole story. How many times yeah. have we heard that in the behind the scenes? And that's why Luke is at the very end has no lines because they need to need to focus on the new characters. And they did that successfully. The Force Awakens is a success in introducing new characters and by passing the torch. And I feel like Ryan then dealt with the idea that when you introduce Luke, he takes over so much that you have to kind of give him essentially a tragic backstory to understand how he moves on from this moment, why he was mm-hmm. why he was removed from the chess game of The Force Awakens and everything that happened before then. And I think he navigated that perfectly, gave Luke a fitting end, and uh, we're left with Luke Skywalker again now in a Force Ghost form. But now we have, of course, you bring him back in, and what happens, what J.J. Pru- said all the way back in 2014 and 2015 that the moment you introduce Luke Skywalker takes over the whole script. And it's exactly what happened here. We're only basically 10 to 15 minutes into the entire movie. And Ray's journey is no longer her own. It is Luke's. And she's finishing Luke's story. And that's carried all the way into the end by her being on Tatooine. And for me, as a female fan who was really looking forward to having a whole trilogy focused on a new character who had no ties to the past, like how wonderful was that to sort of have this idea that anyone can be a hero, that I could be a hero if I was in Star Wars. And I feel like now she has the mantle of finishing what Luke started while also having being a Palpatine by blood by also being Leia's Leia's apprentice and all these things are kind of thrust upon her um, where you kind of lose sight of the fact that this is no longer Ray's story. Yeah. And, and yeah, I think, I think you described it perfectly and it's like, we're, we're like you said, we're 15 minutes in and this is the second time that Ray has made it about Luke. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's so frustrating it's so frustrating. Luke is one of my all-time favorite characters in mm-hmm. Star Wars. And this just – like this film just really rubs me the wrong way with how they handled his character. Because Luke's ultimate goal in the original trilogy, how I see it, was to show compassion for his father and bring him back. And he did that. 
like he he Luke finished what he started. <laughs> um, as far as like his hero's journey with the original trilogy went, what he didn't finish was recon- was like true reconciliation with Ben. And he still doesn't do that. But I think like in terms of his actual hero's journey, that is completed in the original trilogy. What he moves on into is a completely different arc that I think is really well explored in The Last Jedi. And for us, that piece that was missing was that final reconciliation with Ben. And like you said, that this theme of like carrying on, finishing what Luke started, earning his saber, bringing him back to Tatooine, it's like, what is Rey doing for herself in this movie? And I'll just, I'll never understand this feel, like you said, like I don't buy that Rey has this close relationship with Luke. I mean, she definitely respects him at the end of The Last Jedi, and I think she would 100% seek his counsel through Force Ghost life, whatever that is. But he was so contrary to so much of her journey in The Last Jedi. Um, I just, I wish there was a way that they had, number one, not even included this at all. <laughs> um, I need to finish what Luke started, and I need to earn his saber, and I need to bring him back to Tatooine. Like, we could have done without any of that, honestly. <laughs> But Ray, more than others, has a much more nuanced view, a much more holistic view of who Luke was. She has seen him at his best and at his worst, quite literally at his worst. But she never kind of brings that up. She just automatically reverts to treating him like a hero again, mm-hmm. even though she's been through this whole thing with him where she's seen his his darkest sides, his weak, weakest sides of abandoning his family, of almost, you know, quote unquote, pulling the trigger on his nephew. Like, good God, that's dark. Uh-huh. But that never, that never comes up. And I just, I don't understand this whole, this whole uh, like house of cards, basically, of having Luke be this really important person to Ray. Um, I just I don't buy it. I I would have so much rather had the Skywalkers focus on Ben Skywalker, Ben Solo. <laughs> <laughs> um, not and I don't want to make it sound like everything should have been about Ben in this movie because it shouldn't it shouldn't be. But Ray's story shouldn't have been as tied to this like the Skywalker story should have stayed with the Skywalkers and then Ray should have been doing something equally important for herself and for the galaxy. But like part of it being for the galaxy is that it's for herself, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said, we're 15 minutes in and this is the second time we're bringing it like Ray's doing something for Luke. Yeah. Yeah. It just it is. It's really hard. What you said is true. It doesn't become her story. At the end of the day, the sequel trilogy was about getting the twins to Tatooine and who Ray's parents were. It wasn't actually about her. Yep. There's a line that Ray says to Leia, there's so much I want to tell you when they're about to leave. And that leaves open so many thoughts in my head about the relationship that Ray has with Leia and how much they've talked about. Like, does Leia know that Ray has frequent visions and clearly continues to have force bond moments with Kylo Ren, her son? And I have to know, I have to think that they've talked about that, but maybe they haven't. And that the fact that that's like a private moment is so interesting to me. And is that what she really wants to tell her? And I think that when you read Resistance Reborn, which is the like pre-Tross novel that Del Rey came out with, um, Leia talks about how she doesn't really know the girl. So it's 
it's really interesting how far they've come. And I have to wonder what they've talked about and what they haven't. And I would like to see it. <laughs> I'm ready for for more Leia and Ray moments that can be totally fleshed out in novels and books and comics and everything like that that aren't pressed by the limitations of the this the the video footage that came before. Yeah, I think that this was Ray unpacking the events of the Last Jedi was something that I think we were really looking forward to in the Rise of Skywalker, and she doesn't. <laughs> Right. With and anyone that's why, or even with herself. Exactly. Ray talking about it was definitely on our wish list. And I think that's why I really like the moment, not to jump ahead, but I will, where Poe and um, Zori Bliss are talking on the rooftops. And I think that that is such a good scene. It honestly feels like a reshoot scene. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I could be wrong about it. But it's one of the few quiet moments where Poe is kind of reflecting on how no one came at the Battle of Crete. And I just really like that moment because here we have a character, Poe, reflecting on the failures and the frustrations and everything that happened in The Last Jedi, which our characters should be reflecting on. They should be talking about. Mm -hmm. I think instead you get a Rey who is kind of suppressing things, um, who isn't talking about anything and i think that suppression is kind of happening with her force bonds with kylo you know you're hard to get rid of all these things yeah and i think that that is kind of carried through where she like doesn't she's kind of pushing past that point that like you know three-day bender that she had when she (laughs) (laughs) have the last jedi um and i think that that can be part of her character but i wish it was resolved a little bit more because at the end of the day i think that there's so much that the trio doesn't even know about Ray, which I think again kind of aids to the discussion about like how close do are we they, buy yeah. it? Because yeah, how close are they? Um, but I liked this moment with Ray and Leia. I just think it's a loaded, loaded sentence, and I'd like to see more of it. I also really like the sentence that Ray says, "Never be afraid of who you are." I think this is supposed to be the theme of the movie, <laughs> and I think it's interesting because it's balanced by Dark Ray saying, don't be afraid of who you are in that one throne room vision sequence. I still just don't really know what to make of it because <laughs> I'm more inclined to believe Dark Ray than I am Leia. And I know that's insane, <laughs> but I I just really wish that Ray had kind of confronted this like this part of herself that she really wasn't afraid of who she was. Where by the end of the movie, I actually do think that she was afraid of who she was. And that's why she kind of basically rebranded. <laughs> and I think, like, I don't, you know, one of my main frustrations, and I've talked to you about this on the phone before, and I've ranted about this before, but to Caitlin specifically. But I I feel like maybe my main frustration with this movie is that I don't get to see Ray explore the darker part mm-hmm. of her. And I think that. I can see it when I rewatch certain scenes. Like I think that the Death Star is a good moment where she's just uh, kind of amped up to like 110% um, and she's exhausted and going for it and kind of leaning into um, this determination that I think kind of stems from the dark side um, where it's like all she's focused on is one singular thing. But I don't, I think that I'm stretching when I make that uh, understanding and when I try to like try to think about what they're going for in that scene, Um, because I think if this movie was really about Ray not being afraid who who she was, I think that she'd really embrace the shadow within herself. And I don't necessarily think I see that at all in this movie. And 
as a woman watching this movie, I think that something that I was really looking forward to, I've spoken about this on panels, I've spoken this about on this on episodes of our own podcast, but I was really looking forward to Ray exploring the darkness within herself. We have someone, we have a character who went straight for the dark when she, you know, tapped into the force in The Last Jedi. It was always the most interesting thing to me about her character, about how she wasn't afraid of things. And I thought that in this movie, especially when we learn that she's a Palpatine, that perhaps that she would kind of tap into that and see if that felt comfortable at all. But instead, it's presented, especially in the dark gray vision, as something scary, as I think that you can argue that there's something like kind of uh, sexy, I suppose, about the dark ray vision, but I don't necessarily think it's in an alluring way that is uh, relatable, that is real, that is kind of presented as it should be in a woman's story. Um, I I feel like instead it's more scary, like you have this the shark teeth and everything. Well, I don't necessarily think the darker part of yourself should be scary. I think it's something that you have to acknowledge and then move on from. Um, I think it can be scary. I just, to me, I just would have written this whole thing differently. And I feel a little betrayed as a woman, um, where we get to see, we get to see characters kind of embrace this darker, like male Jedi characters embrace this darker part of themselves and live in regret and everything like that. And I don't think that Rey is afforded that time to deal with that. I think that her regret, perhaps when she kind of goes straight to the dark and, and kills Kylo in that moment, I, I think that there's a lot to unpack there and we'll get there. Um, her regret is so brief. I do think that that's one of the greater moments in the in the movie, but I I still am unsure if that can even be called her embracing her darkness. I don't know, and I I feel like this quote: "Never be afraid of who you are. Don't be afraid of who you are." I think that Ray is afraid of who she is, and I am surprised by that. Um, I don't know. I think that there's a lot of arguments that can be kind of thrown at me against this. And I, I, I will, I understand that. Like, I think that Ray is, could be her parents who were strong, like she says, and they were brave and they protected her for who she was and everything like that. If you want to believe that, um, which you, 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 I, I don't, I don't know. I'm, what I'm saying is that I'm still kind of struggling with this. I don't think that necessarily Ray got to explore her darkness in a satisfying way to me. Yes, I agree. I don't think she did at all, which is strange because she spends so much of this movie very angry. But she never, I mean, you know, once she finds out that she's a Palpatine, she says the word Palpatine once and it's in regards to like feeling vengeful about him killing her parents it's not about her coming to terms with who she is. And it is it's it's just like yeah. this what you're talking about and you did a great job describing it. It just it is so wrapped up in this whole discussion of like this being a plot movie, not a character movie, it not being Ray's story, her power being tied to Palpatine. It's not her own. She's finishing Luke's story, not her own. Um it all is just it, it all overshadows her completely. To the point where she never, like, she never has a moment to breathe with it herself. And it is, it, it, it's so upsetting. <laughs> like, I, I talk so much about what I wanted for Ben in this movie. And I said a million times that I wasn't sure what they were going to do with Ray. But I was never worried about what they were going to do with Ray. And then this turned out to be like the sharpest knife, I think, 
in this film was what they did with Ray. And like, I'll never like Ray Palpatine is just, it's so awful. (laughs) Um, And it didn't have to be either. Like it could have been this thing that happened. I don't, it just, I think it's awful in a lot for a lot of different reasons, but putting it here in episode nine is just, it is just, it's stupid. Um, it's stupid and it doesn't make sense. It's not good for the story. I don't understand who thought that they would have time to get this whole storyline in and out in two and a half hours, you know? And, and because Mm -hmm. of that, like what you're saying, she doesn't get to embrace that dark side. She doesn't get to confront that shadow. I mean, Yoda was given more time to confront his shadow than Ray was, (laughs) And yeah. like that is just ridiculous, right? That's insane. And it just it it is so frustrating because she does spend so much of this movie angry, but it's not a productive anger. She's just mad. Um like when we see her in The Last Jedi, it's inquisitive of the dark side. She's not afraid of it. And and that's what I was saying earlier is about this film saying something more about the Force and about the Jedi. And this thing that you and I have been predicting and wanting has been that the sequel trilogy would come to this full-bodied understanding of what it is to have light and dark within you, of embracing your shadow. Mm -hmm. And you're right, she doesn't do it. And that's why, like, that's that's just, like, reason number 57 why this is such a hard film. And it does the most damage, I think, to Ray in particular because she doesn't – she doesn't talk about it. She doesn't come to terms with it. She just – I think you're right. Like, she is afraid of it to the point where she hides it herself. I, I talked to you about this at one point, too, about how Luke, he gets to change the legacy of the Skywalker name. Because once the world found out that Anakin Skywalker became Vader, like Skywalker is a bad name. But Luke got to have the Skywalker name and it got like his legend got to overshadow Anakin and Vader's legend, like that dark legend. Like Luke Mm -hmm. got to make it a powerful, good name. Rey doesn't get to do that with Palpatine's name. That doesn't get to be a hero's name because she is a hero. She just has to take Luke's name. (laughs) It... (laughs) Yeah, I I forget what what you were saying in relation to, but earlier, you know, it was like lines like these, like, oh, yes, this was not written by women. Yeah. Written by a man. It's just, like I said, I I never anticipated this movie to completely devastate me with what it did to Ray. And I – Me neither. Me neither. I thought that they were really so gentle with the heroine's journey. And we were following it. Yeah. We were doing it. it. I, I <laughs> felt like the rug was pulled out from under me with her in a million different ways. And, th- and this is what I meant when I said, I'm not sure if I'll like what we find once we start unpacking this movie more. <laughs> because things like this, mm-hmm. like I didn't necessarily pick up on in the first viewing. But the more that I see it, these things just become so glaring when I watch it of like, don't be afraid of who you are. Yeah, that's great. But she ends the movie literally burying the past <laughs> and picking a new name. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, and now let's move on to a personal hurt of mine, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is the Kintsugi helmet. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. The thing is, is that the Kintsugi helmet was from a design point definitely related to Kintsugi. I think that your meta stands. I think it's it's fair to assess that that was where the helmet came yes, from. Yes, I, I agree. <laughs> However, <laughs> this is just one of those things. It's like the fact that because I remember writing the meta and the question at the end of it, and I think what a lot of people were asking, it was like, okay, yes, we we have all of this symbolic imagery with the helmet itself, but there are a lot of questions unanswered within the film as far as who's wearing it, who made it, who wanted it remade. Why does he take it off? Why does he put it back on? And you know what? I still have all of those questions. <laughs> um, and it was made it was made even worse, honestly, by the fact that JJ was like, yes, it's Kintsugi, you know? But then it's literally given no no time in the film. Like there's no exploration of that. And remember when when Adam said, I hope you really see him? And we were like, oh, maybe he'll do something heroic in the mask. Mm-hmm. Or that the helmet has some important significance. Yes. You'll see. I don't Adam. I think what he was referring to, if I'm being generous, is the line that I think is great when Ray says, I see through the cracks of your mask, you're haunted. I think that he was probably privy to understanding the symbolic implications of the mask and the cracks inside of it. And something as such with that line means that, you know, Ray was able to see this covering of him. I think in the same interview is where he talks about how the clothes that he wears as Kylo Ren um, kind of weigh him down. There's so many layers. There's so like what is beneath the clothing. I know it sounds ridiculous to say, but he that's what he said. We're not mm-hmm. <laughs> looking too deep into this. He said you can see that the, you know, the, the clothing is tight. Perhaps it's constricting and so is the helmet and everything. And that itself in and itself is symbolic and it was really gratifying to hear that from Adam Driver because it was like, well, yeah, that's what we've been saying. <laughs> like, yes, overanalyzing. Yeah. Um, but I think that here, and I think that you can even take that as far as at the end where, you know, if you Ben Solo shows up in literally just a sweater and, you know, all of the the tunic and everything is kind of removed, all the the layers of dark side have kind of been shed off, like it almost like a, you know, metaphorical onion. And I feel like <laughs> it's, if you want to apply the same thing here for the mask, I think that that maybe that's what he was going for. And this is a generous read, obviously, but that he was putting it back on to shield what was going on inside. And I think that that's how Adam would think about it as, because I think that if anything, he's wearing the mask from an in-universe point of view. I think he's wearing the mask to kind of prove to Ray that he's okay, (laughs) that he's doing good that the closing of the door or whatever has been happening in the past year, because clearly their force bonds still happen, um, that he's he really wants her back, but he's not completely devastated in the way that I think that you and I both think that he is. He's like, uh, I don't even know. <laughs> he's, he's crying under the mask. Basically. I guess. Yeah. I feel like we're reading a lot into it. And I know that I read a lot into it in the beginning, but I don't think we're reading a lot into it. I, I think that by Adam even saying that, we're supposed to read into it. I agree. I just, again, it's something that just wasn't given any time in the film. Yeah. And it, it was – and them mentioning it so much leading up to it, it's like, oh, you expect it to be something. And maybe that's 
the inherent problem with how marketing and promotion works these days for films. But it it was just like a big letdown of like, oh, well, it's on. Now it's off. And that's it. And it's gone. And like <laughs> the construction of it coming together and everything was even a kind of confusing scene where I was like, what is even going on? Yeah, I think I- even the Knights of Ren in this movie are even confusing where I'm just like, <laughs> what are they even doing? I think that they jj wanted them to like ryan didn't use the knights of ren in the throne room sequence because he thought that jj would want to use them for something better than just being like sliced in half essentially in (laughs) in the throne room but that's exactly what happens to him that's what happens to them at the end of this movie on exegol it's like essentially the same fight and i think it's interesting (laughs) because i think I actually like the Knights of Ren. I think it's funny when there's a shot right after the scene of the creation of the helmet where they're kind of trudging mud throughout the Star Destroyer. And I think there's a, there's a line in the visual dictionary that's like really funny of Hux not liking the Knights of Ren because they tr- they bring in all the dirt. I love that. <laughs> I think that's so great. They and don't, they don't care. I, yeah. And, I, <laughs> and they don't care at all. I think it's I think that's great. Um, but I think that like when I saw this movie with my parents, my mom was like, who are they? <laughs> I was like, I know, mood. <laughs> because th- I don't think the movie gave us enough time to be like, here's Kylo and here's his Knights of Ren. Here's the and that's exactly like, I think there's that one Halloween scene. And I think that we can think what we want to think about that, but, um, and kind of understand who they are. But I'm surprised that JJ didn't give them a lot of time. Imagine. Or even a sentence of time. exploration. <laughs> Imagine yeah. if that one line had been cut from The Force Awakens. <laughs> <laughs> would have been good. You, Masters of the Knights of Ren. We would have saved so much discourse and we would have at least gotten like two minutes of time back in The Rise of Skywalker for something else meaningful. <laughs> <laughs> and those two minutes, they're valuable. They are, they're really valuable. Film, they're very valuable. <laughs> <laughs> they're gold. <laughs> they're literal gold. They are. <laughs> Yeah, I once again, I feel like I've got a good radar for these characters that I shouldn't invest myself in. <laughs> yeah, you do. You really do. You never really cared about the Knights of Ren. I was like, maybe we should care about the Knights of Ren, yeah. Caitlin. And and you were like, I'm just not going to. I was like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and here and, we are. <laughs> and here we are. We don't have to care about the Knights of Ren. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> That's, I, that reminds me of, like, of course, Phasma and our friend Katie Pohat Dameron. She had this tweet the other day that I thought was so funny. <laughs> it's like, it was talking about Phasma, and it was like, Phasma gets thrown into the pit. And me in 2017, Phasma, come out. Me in 2020, Phasma, take me with you. That's <laughs> 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 so funny. <laughs> Perfect. It really was. <laughs> Okay, so next we have the board meeting scene, which is actually a pretty funny scene. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's cool too because it is – I feel like it's a good mirror of A New Hope and it's the only one of the few times that we see Kylo actually in the capacity of Supreme Leader and making decisions for things. Mm-hmm. And their conversation I think is actually an interesting one where they're all hella confused about Exegol, which, you know, same <laughs> – and they're like, they've just been ch- like, all these star destroyers are out there. They're just ch- like, what do they want from us? And, you know, then Kylo just throws him in the ceiling and the conversation's over. Yeah, I really like this line. I think that 
this is another mirror to A New Hope where you have that one guy in A New Hope in the boardroom meeting scene who is kind of calling out basically exactly what the downfall of the Empire is, essentially, and then he's punished for it. Um, and I think that the same thing happens here. The quote is, forgive me, sir, but these allies on Exegol, they sound like a cult, conjurers and soothsayers. And then you get um, the next character going, they've conjured le- pride, the legions of star destroyers, the Sith fleet will increase our resources 10,000 fold. Such a range and power will correct the error of Starkiller base. And I love that because it's like such a call out to Hux and Hux just sneers so great. Um and then the guy goes, this fleet, what is it, a gift? What is he asking for in return? And that's when Kylo throws him on the ceiling. And I think that that was a really good moment because what is he asking for in return? Well, it's everything. And uh, he's asking for Kylo to kind of give up any sort of chance with Ray in terms of like anything in terms of a relationship, a good relationship at all to bring Ray almost as a sacrifice to Palpatine. And I think that's something that Kylo is wrestling with himself. And I don't think that he even wants to deal with that um, in this in this scene, essentially, in order to kind of... This feels like an easy way for him to be a good Supreme Leader, where he can be like, oh, wait, I'll hear all of these things. Here's a whole legion of Star Destroyers. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be great. This is a perfect, easy option. But of course, it's not an easy option, because what Kylo has to do is sacrifice something that he cares deeply about which is ray and kind of go all out on that sort of quest i think he's just hoping that he can basically kill two birds with one stone he can exactly i guess and then give to the first order that'll shut them up for a while and then he Uh can figure out how to get ray and they can kill palpatine because he tells her his plan right he's like palpatine wants to kill you (laughs) yeah exactly and i think that I because of I really liked this scene. This was expedi- exposition done well because I we get a glimpse into what the um the first order is kind of dealing with and get some you know jaunty Hux vibes. I really like the whole he's uneasy about the ex- uh, the appearance thing, calling him out on the mask. No, 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 no I, I like, like the, it. the lady who's yeah who's sitting next to him, like. Well, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> so <It's> great. <laughs> Um, I also really like the line at the end of the scene of my knights and I are going hunting for the scavenger. So great. He's going on a scavenger hunt, guys. <laughs> when you tweeted this the other day, I died laughing. I was like, oh, my God, a scavenger hunt. It's you so have to, like, take pictures, you know, you have to like get the pictures printed out so you can like prove that you got all the stuff. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Pose like a boy band it was number like three on the Knights of Friends scavenger hunt. <laughs> totally okay so we finally made it to Pasana, and Yay. i think this is probably my favorite part i don't know I, I say that about a couple things in this movie because i can't really decide but i really do love the Pasana sequence so much i love the festival i even like the little joke at the at the top with 42. with 3po and they all turn around and are like what the heck <laughs> like stop talking <laughs> i love it i think it's really funny and i think it's played really well yeah, I like Pasana. Pasana is Pasana is a fun place. It's you know, it's it's one of the few it's it's nice to be on a desert planet that has something else different going on mm-hmm. on it than just being desert. Exactly. <laughs> it's full of life. It's joyous. It's Yeah, imagine. I know, and it is 
I don't know. I like that it's the forbidden desert of Pasana. I I love that terminology. It's so mysterious. It's so fairy tale. I really like it. Um, and I I love when they go over the cliff and they see all the kites and everything and all the colors. I think it's mm-hmm. I think it's really perfect. Um, yeah. and I really like the way that Ray interacts inside the festival. She's so happy to be there, and no one else is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I think that that's another differentiating part about like her relationship with this trio i think that she like finds meaning in the joyful little small things and it is so it was so great to see the like pure happiness of seeing something new on ray i don't think that i will ever tire of seeing that from someone who spent all her life on a desert planet and here we have like you said like this like revitalized joyful festival i bet she'd never seen anything like that in her life Yeah, I think it was really great to just see her enjoying it. The festival itself, I think, is a really cool concept of they they celebrate their ancestors once every 42 years, (laughs) (laughs) which I I don't mind that like kind of it's been 42 years since A New Hope came out. Uh Um, I think that's kind of I think that's fun, tongue in cheek kind of Easter egg. I enjoy that a lot. But the concept of it, too, again, this idea of like honoring the past and and all of that. And I don't know. It's just – it's a fun – it's a fun scene. And it is funny too how you said that like Poe and Finn are not at all interested. I think Finn at one point is like, why are we slowing down? Only talk I've never them. seen so few Wayfinders yeah. is what he says. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which it's is funny. funny. It's a it funny, funny moment. <laughs> it is funny. <laughs> Ray's like, wow. And he's like, wow, no Wayfinders. <laughs> it, it is funny. Um, and the, the scene – the only bad thing about this this whole sequence is that we get the first person who's like, what's your name? No. What's your last name? <laughs> Which, to be fair, in a lot of cultures, that like where you're from is a part of who you are. It's a That's very- why I didn't really mind this one specifically. Yeah, this one is okay. Like in many cultures, that's how you – like sometimes you don't even ask what your name is or what your last name is. It's like where are you from? Who are your people? So I think that – I don't think it's out of the ordinary for someone to – like in a different culture to ask where you're from or like what – like to prod a little deeper. But the fact that it just sets it up for the end of the film. <laughs> the thing is is that I I feel like in a – here's where I see – the beauty in developing this movie. And that's why I really love Pasana because I think that it is super artistically designed and I think it serves a function that is intriguing. This festival honors the dead. You have they they go as far as to kind of illustrate that they're like throwing artifacts from the past into a fire pit in order to manifest the spirit again. It's not unlike I think it's supposed to be similar to like Dia de los Muertos. And I think it's supposed to be like that in space. And then you have you, – you, so you see that fire pit happening, the dance, which is like choreographed and I think written by Lin-Manuel Miranda, which I think is really great. And I – and then you see the kids watching the puppet version of what is happening. So yeah. I really like this whole idea that like <laughs> – it's sort of meta, right? That you can celebrate the things that uh, – are from the past like and I haven't fully unpacked in my brain but I do there's definitely a link there of how do you honor the dead how do you honor what has been gone um in its in joyful celebration and I think that that is 
really be- like I I really do think it's a beautiful message, and I think that's exactly what Star Wars is trying to say. Um, and I I I think it's pretty meaningful that Ray finds joy in it too, you know. And I I really like the the little girl or woman I don't know how old she is <laughs> who asks um, <laughs> Ray those questions, and Ray says just Ray, and I really liked that it gave me hope (laughs) in this scene (laughs) as well i also really like the necklace situation yeah which this has been raylo spaces i think this has been kind of broken down as a sort of symbolically for like a fertility necklace what i think is fair to assume given the fact that this this festival is about like bringing new life and um honoring the dead and the past and like the renewal and the rebirth and all these things so of course that's what you know this 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 necklace from a design point of view would kind of come from and i also think it's like super hot when he snatches it from her (laughs) (laughs) i I don't know i really like the pisana scene a lot i don't really find a lot of fault in it like basically at all i also think that it's it's pretty hotly debated right now when ray sees the kids laughing at the puppet whether she sees you know the happiness of of the kids and the laughing children and I think that it, or whether or not she sees, you know, this prospect of a, you know, a woman yearning for a family. And I'm here to say that I think it's both. Yeah, <laughs> and I think I do too. I think that it can be both. And I think that my point of view, the first time I saw it, I was like, wow, that's a woman yearning for her family. But I do think that it can also be, wow, I'm looking at a childhood that was totally ripped away from me. And here I am in a desert that could be Jakku, but it's not. And yeah. and here are these kids, you know, filled with, you know, joy of listening to stories from the past and which we know Ray 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 loved. Like, you know, Luke Skywalker, I thought he was just a myth. So I think that it can be both. Um, I think from my personal lens, I see I I do see Ray yearning for a family. I think that's fine. I think that's exactly what she wanted at the end of her journey. I think that's what she wanted her entire life um, for family. And I think if we're on a coming of age journey with Ray, a young woman, I think that that's fair to assume that um, that would be part of her journey as well. You don't have to interpret it that way, but that's how I interpret it. Ugh, makes me so sad. I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I think the the whole Pisana, it is interesting that it is a desert because I think you can kind of extrapolate that to think about, you know, what Jakku was and that not all deserts are barren and that there could like this could have been a ver- – you kind of talked about this, but this could have been a version of her life too of like if she had just been left on this planet, you know, what, what would have happened to her. Mm-hmm. You're right. I, I don't find a lot of fault in the Pisana sequence. I even – I like the force bond that happens between them. Um, I This is like as close as we get to the banter that I think we wanted between them. And I think it's pretty loaded uh, discussion that they have here too. The only thing that throws me off a little bit is how her space – like it gets dark on Pisana. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't she, make sense. Yeah. That's the only thing where I'm kind of like mm, – <laughs> it can um, make sense because it's fantasy and whatever. But yeah, but it's just – it's not what we saw the other Force Bond do. I don't know. And they're not like at the point where they're trading things back and forth and it's not clear that it's dark where Kylo is because he's in space. And he's in a bright light room. Yeah, yeah. You know, like I could have bought it a little bit more if he was like outside Same. in the dark time. Maybe but- that was the original plan. 
<laughs> mm-hmm. We never know. We literally will never know. <laughs> the The conversation, though, that they have in this fourth bond is really interesting. And I like that Kylo has kind of interrupted this really, like, nice moment <laughs> uh-huh. where she's where she's she's kind of lost sight of the mission, you know, she's just enjoying she's enjoying the festivities. But their conversation, I think, is worth repeating. He says uh, he says <laughs> he just starts off with Palpatine wants you dead. <laughs> Uh (laughs) And then she goes, ah, serving another master. He goes, no, I have other plans. I offered you my hand once. You wanted to take it. Why didn't you? You could have killed me. Why didn't you? You can't hide, Ray, not from me. I see the cracks of your mask. You're haunted. You can't stop seeing what you did to your father. Do you still count the days since your parents left? Such pain in you, such anger. I don't want to have to kill you. I'm going to find you, and I'm going to turn you to the dark side. We'll see. And then he snatches the necklace. I like how they're both. Yeah, I, I like this conversation a lot until the end. <laughs> like so much in this movie. I just I think it's I, I actually can view this as I'm gonna find you and turn you to the dark side as Kylo trying to be savvy, but actually savvy? failing. I like like really trying to be smooth and like totally failing. Like I think Oh, that, I don't interpret it that way at all. I think that him being like, I have other plans, I and then immediately going, I offered you my hand once, you wanted to take it, why didn't you? Like, okay, clearly that's what your other plans are. And and I think that yeah. he is trying anything he can to get Ray by his side. And perhaps the only thing that he thinks is, Okay, I guess I gotta turn her to the dark side. Because one, that's the only way that I'm going to be able to get her by my side and also convince Palpatine not to have her killed. Mm, I don't think I agree with that. I think it's I think it's a bad line. I, I love the whole other <laughs> part of this conversation where they're just throwing their like their weaknesses at each other because they know them. You know, mm-hmm. they spot like they're not responding to each other at all because they're just like throwing the next insult <laughs> like why it's didn't so you good. tell me you can't hide from me you're haunted oh are you still counting the days since your parents left you know like <laughs> they're not they're just throwing whatever they can at each other but this end line of i'm going to find you and the, even the way that he says it and i'm going to find you and i'm going to turn you to dark side <laughs> like <laughs> I just it feels so shoehorned in and it feels for me it feels out of character for Kylo to say that um it feels like a something he would have said in the force awakens this was never really a part of his motivations I don't think in the last Jedi I think you can definitely infer those in the undertones of his proposal at the end of the last Jedi but for me I don't think it was ever about him turning Rey to the dark side I don't think he would have cared if she was on the dark side as long as they were together um Mm -hmm. he'd be like you can call yourself whatever you want (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> um, and so for him to be like so explicit, it it it's almost like what you were saying about the crawl earlier. Like it feels very pulpy. It feels very villain, but it's not backed up by what he was saying literally sentences earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why that's why I don't like that line. The rest of the conversation, though. I really, really like. And when this happened, I was like, oh, OK, like I'm going to be OK with the Raylo scenes and this film and that is more or less true um but this this scene in particular up until the last line stands out for me um i really like how they're still kind of throwing these old insults at each other and like like this is the most honest conversation i think that any of the characters have in the film one of them anyway uh they have ray and kylo i think have another conversation later on the death star that i think is pretty telling but um this is like 
I think the most vulnerable conversation that our characters that any of them have. I think mm-hmm. the only other one I think I would argue maybe more is Finn and Jana when they're talking about their pasts. Yeah, I love that scene. Yeah, but um, this one, of course, is just more meaningful for for us. Again, this is our bias in the film, but just because these characters do have an established relationship. But I think that the Finn and Jana conversation is probably the the other most vulnerable conversation that happens the vulnerable and meaningful conversation because i think that i think that there are some lines and stuff that are vulnerable ish but again that it doesn't i i struggle to find meaning in a lot of the things that are said in this film but this conversation i think is meaningful because it's them like picking at each other's barbs and their like insecurities that they have. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I really liked it, you know, except for the end. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Um, and so then after this, after the, after he snatches the necklace, which is, I really like that. Mm-hmm. Um, he, uh, that's when Ray goes, it's Ren. <laughs> that's the first oh. use of the word Ren. Mm-hmm. I'm literally so triggered by <laughs> the use of the term Ren. Yeah. I- <laughs> And oh, the way that the way that in, in all of the Chris Terrio interviews that have come up since then, since the movie came out, and he only refers to Kylo as Ren. We want to, We did this with Ren. We did that with Ren. We did this with Ren. I just it doesn't even make sense in in the context of canon. It doesn't. That's the thing that really drives me crazy. <laughs> anyway, um, oh, I just boy. it feels super out of character given the fact that. Um, Ray's always been really intentional with the terms that she uses talking about Kylo. She had really specific in calling him Ben. I just thought that she would refer back to calling him Kylo. Kylo. Given yeah. the fact in, in The Last Jedi, she says she refers to Kylo Ren as Kylo. Yeah. And she's had I, Kylo Ren too before. It's never, but just Ren is just so off putting. It's weird. And I think that it makes sense in a way because if they, if they had started from this in the beginning, it would have made sense to me because Ren rhymes with Ben. It just, it makes sense but i i think that it's weird <laughs> so yeah when I'm like, they oh, find i'm like oh here's chris terrio in a specific specific line that he wrote <laughs> exactly <laughs> so then they find lando and i really like this introduction as well i i especially like the front seat alien oh my god it was like okay i love her so much <laughs> i love her so much yeah <laughs> she- it's just such a good scene. Just slams the door and off they go. <laughs> it's uh, it's really it's really good. I really liked this introduction to Lando. I was not expecting this to be where we found him, and Me I either. was pleasantly surprised. I really enjoy. It. I, if you guys listen to any of our pre-tross content, I was definitely one of. I'm. I think I was a worrywart over all of the new characters coming into this film, and I think that I was 100 percent right about that. And, but I was also very worried about Lando. And uh, I think they, I think they used him really well. I think his, I liked his introduction here. I was really surprised. This is where we found him, and it felt like Lando. It didn't feel like him trying to be Lando from the original trilogy. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think it's interesting the way they introduce Lando as you know his flying days are over. And I need more backstory about Lando here because in the Visual Dictionary we learn things like. He had a daughter who he lost, and I suppose that daughter is supposed to be Lando. It's like heavily implied in the visual, not Lando, Jana. It's heavily implied in the visual dictionary, but never followed through except for that really one curious conversation at the end of the movie that it really 
is quite confusing to me. Um, and I think by starting Lando from a place that's really similar to almost Luke of, you know, I'm not going to take up the mantle of hero anymore. Here we have Lando saying that his flying days are over. Like all we have known from Lando really is this like adventure spirit. And that's kind of lost here. And it's just another example of like how the war and the conflict kind of takes everything. And then you get another by the, the visual dictionary saying that you get that he's lost a child, you have like another instance of a stolen child. And I think that's just, if there are any themes in the sequel trilogy, it's belonging and stolen children. And I guess it makes sense to me that Lando would also have a stolen child, but the movie doesn't present this at all. And I do find it really intriguing and I would have liked to see it some more. Um, I think it's pretty sad that Lando didn't answer Leia's call. And I kind of like the idea that when Lando's like, give Leia my love. And Ray's like, you should give it to her yourself, General. And I, I really like that because I like the idea that Ray's kind of like, kind of done playing messenger um, of like, you you know, if you're going to be a hero, you got to step up to the plate and help your friends. Like we have, you had each other in the past. And I think this comes back to Lando's line at the end um, when Poe is kind of contemplating his leadership in front of Leia's body. And Poe's like, um, how did you guys do it? How did you even defeat an empire with just this? And and Lando's like, well, we had each other. Well, in this moment, you know, Leia doesn't, they don't have each other. Um, and I think that it's, I like the fact that Ray is kind of calling out Lando in this moment of being like, you know, you get back to the fight. Like, <laughs> we have a lot to fight for and uh, you should go talk to Leia yourself. <laughs> Yeah, I I really liked the I was like very intrigued by the idea that Lando and Luke were out doing this thing um Same. together. I think it's a really interesting development for Lando's character, which we see in Return of the Jedi, but how he goes from this, you know, smuggler interested only in himself and and you know, this deal gets worse all the time. <laughs> um mm-hmm. and Empire strikes back to being an active part of the rebellion and return the Jedi, but then to see that that continued, like he didn't just like win the war and go, you know, like he, he went on this like important thing, this important mission with Luke that was very near to his heart. I think, I think if <laughs> that means I have to understand OG's timeline too. <laughs> um, but, and, and I like the idea of Luke and Lando together because they obviously don't get a ton of time in the original trilogy. And I think that's a really fascinating dynamic. And I mm-hmm. do definitely want to see where that story goes. Um, but again, like so much with this movie, it's like the more that I think about it, then I start finding all these holes with it. And that's like what you said with this. It's like, oh, Lando didn't answer Leia's call before, but he clearly has contact with them. So I guess now he'll answer it, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> those, those kinds of things. I'm like, OK. And then again, the the Jana situation is just really frustrating. <laughs> just so much potential. It's just it's not. And it's I feel like they left it on the cutting room floor and you can feel it. Yeah. I, that end scene of them is just it's like, hey, this is a spinoff. <laughs> That's what it felt like. It's baffling. Well, it's funny because I think that people have interpreted that, Caitlin, as flirtatious, which is strange. And I feel like, obviously, I don't interpret it that way, but I think that it's fascinating that someone could have almost zero context clues because that's what the movie provides. And, like, that's all we know about, like, not all we know, but that's what we know about Lando is that's kind of who he is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's just... 
I don't know, poorly written and poorly handled. Yeah, it 100 percent is. Um, okay, okay, let's talk about the whole Ochi pot because <laughs> oh, I can't talk about the Ochi pot. Okay, then let's not. I just I I have. No, I think I think we we I think what we can say about the Ochi plot is that no one knows Ochi's plot. Ochi doesn't know Ochi's plot, <laughs> and it is so confusing. I remember the first time we walked out of this movie, you thought that Luke had been like Luke and Ochi had. I been thought Luke and Ochi on were together. together. Yeah, because that's how little and sense I was like, it no, makes. no, 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 no. <laughs> he's he's dead down there. <laughs> it just- well, also the fact that his ship has remained for so long, like, the, you know, we saw in The Force Awakens how quickly scavengers scavenge parts. Like, when the TIE fighter explodes on Jakku, the scavengers are there ready to dissemble it. And what, Ochi's ship is both working, like, seriously, it's working, <laughs> and and on a cliff not baked away by the sun at all are you kidding me it's been there for so long it's all still there it's all still like there. what like 15 years or something yeah at least and even just like thinking about i'm still i'm still just confused about the timelines about like okay so ochi was sent to bring a little girl from jacku to palpatine and then <laughs> and, he, and, you and then well, it's just like it's really confusing so that's bef- obviously before he abandoned his ship here on on pasana so when is that before or after the dagger is created well the dagger is created before then because the dagger stabs raise parents so then uh right yeah you can't forget about that and then <laughs> then it's like okay so when was luke searching for ochi was this also like at the same time and when yeah, did Alex ochi right. die in the sinking pits because Lando is why, on Pisana, so like they got to Pisana. And why is his ship at the top, out of the sinking pits? <laughs> but this is what's confusing too: is Lando and Luke were looking for the dagger, right? They're looking for Ochi, yes, for the dagger, right? And Lando is like right next door to the dagger. <laughs> Honestly. It just it's really just overly confusing. And I think this is where this is a good point for me to talk about MacGuffins. Mm-hmm. So this movie is littered with MacGuffins. It, it, there, there are 400 MacGuffins and it is <laughs> really overloaded with MacGuffins. I think Blast Points podcast talked about how this was pretty similar to Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And I think that's really true. If you've seen that movie recently, there's like so many things they're after and it's like a, it changes from a person to an object, blah, 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 right? So with MacGuffins, I think when I was doing, uh, when I was writing the show notes for this, I kind of went down a hole of the thing about MacGuffins. And I think what you should know about MacGuffins is that MacGuffins advance the plot. They're a thing, an object usually, that are a means to an end. It's the plot and the characters use it to figure out to advance the plot, right? And in screenwriting sense, they're supposed to show us something about the characters rather than the plot itself. But in the end, the MacGuffin is really supposed to mean nothing. It's really supposed to show us more about the character than the plot itself. I think the top examples for this is um, the movie and the book, The Maltese Falcon. At the end of The Maltese Falcon, The Maltese Falcon means nothing. And honestly, even The Holy Grail, which the journey of the quest to find the grail is more important than the grail itself. 
And I think even in Mission Impossible, which I think is uh, an interesting thing to cite because that's a JJ movie, at least some of them are JJ movies. I actually think the best ones are JJ movies. Um, The rabbit's foot is the Mission Impossible thing. It's the code word. But like, you really don't even care what the rabbit's foot is the entire time. It just advances the plot. It's a means to an end to show some really awesome action sequences to show Tom Cruise do some awesome running and all these things really just advance the plot, but don't aren't necessarily meaningful to the characters. So what does this have to do with the rise of Skywalker? Um, I think that all of these MacGuffins don't really show as much about the character. In fact, I think they bog down the plot. Yeah, because this is, this, like this whole Ochi thing, this is just one MacGuffin in this. Oh movie. yeah, exactly. And it's it's given like so much time, and the fact that we are even thinking about Ochi means that we're not thinking about the yeah. Characters. And you can't forget that they're not trying to find the dagger here; they're trying to find the Wayfinder, which is two different God, MacGuffins. I forgot. Yes. <laughs> okay, so another interesting thing about MacGuffins, and I think I have to mention this, is that George Lucas wasn't necessarily a fan of the MacGuffin in that sense that I just described. He always thought of the R2-D2 as the MacGuffin of the original trilogy, which I think is really interesting and I think works, especially in A New Hope. Um, But if you want to apply that same thought to and like everything that we were talking about with MacGuffins (laughs) to The Force Awakens, I think BB-8 is necessarily a MacGuffin, but in the end does he fully even matter? Like, I think we kind of lose the whole BB-8 plot kind of in the middle of it because what Kylo is after is BB-8, but then it ends up being what what he's after Rey. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the the thing, the conflict and the plot and the characters kind of change in regards to the fact that the MacGuffin is fully changing. That's one through line throughout the entire movie. In the end, the original MacGuffin, then the R2-D2, and the, the beginning of the sequel trilogy, MacGuffin, BB-8 kind of come together to form the ultimate map to Luke Skywalker. And um, here's a quote, I know, here's a quote from George about MacGuffins in 2008. The audience should care only about it almost as much as the dueling heroes and villains on screen. This quote is kind of opposite of the way that I think about MacGuffins that I honestly think is the general understanding of what a MacGuffin is. Um, because I actually disagree. I think that you should care more about the dueling heroes and villains on screen rather than the means to an end of the plot and the like the MacGuffins themselves. Um, and I think all this to say is that I do think there's something interesting about like a treasure hunt, a scavenger trip, a scavenger hunt, really, that feels pretty Star Wars, especially when you have a scavenger, um, about going on a quest to find artifacts and things that help them advance the plot and everything. I just think it was handled in a pretty confusing way. And I think when you throw like 50 MacGuffins into the mix, it bogs down the plot and it the story then becomes about the means to an end rather than what these things are necessarily showing us to the characters. Like even with the Wayfinder, you know, at the in on Octo, when Luke says you have everything you need, and then there's a Wayfinder in the burned TIE fighter. It's almost like in that moment, what would have been really powerful is if Ray actually had something inside of herself that would drive her to Exegol rather than just like how Luke was able to blow up the Death Star exactly. through the Force. He didn't need the GPS. Exactly. Instead of an object that would help her find her way, it seems like at this point, when she would have burned the TIE fighter, 
it seems like the MacGuffins then wouldn't really even matter. That like everything that came before, all that matters is you. And that's not what happened. It's like, oh, there's one in the ship. <laughs> and I think there's something interesting going on about how, like there's only two McGuff- uh, two McGuffins, two, two Wayfinders, <laughs> and one of them is Kylo's and one of them is Ray's. And obviously, I think that's interesting because there's like the, the Diad thing, you know, everything like that. Mm-hmm. But I do think that it would have been power- more powerful if the MacGuffin actually was nothing. <laughs> if... If the Wayfinder really was just a way for Ray to find something within herself rather than use it as, like, honestly, a GPS situation. I I remember, like, we know that Kylo was hunting artifacts from Resistance, which I think is a fun connection between the two. But I think it would have been so, such a better use of time and honestly more of a pressure cooker situation if they had been searching for the same thing. Because – they would have been able to find out that they're both searching for the same thing through their force bond. And then it, it's like a race to get there. Yes. And then, of course, the the moment is that they both get there probably at the same time. Yes, that would have and been so much better. Between, you know, and it's just this one thing. And then they're kind of – we could have had force bond moments throughout the journey while they're getting closer and closer. And, you know, they're talking about Palpatine or they're – you know, like it could have – if we had just had one <laughs> – then it would have been a it it would have been doing all these things that you've been talking about of it's about the character's journey to getting to the MacGuffin, not the MacGuffin itself. But this movie just like gives you whiplash of every planet that we're going to and every possible reason that a MacGuffin works or doesn't work or it works this way, but not this way. Well, it's fireproof, so it still works. <laughs> um, and. Yeah, it just it, – it, I mean, you basically said everything that we needed to say about MacGuffins in this film. There are too many of them and they – they there are too many of them and they create so many different subplots that are given way too much time when – if we had just – if there had been one way – which and, and then also it's like how are all of these Sith cultists getting to Exegol? They all got there somehow, right? Yeah, I guess. I know. I don't know. They got there, but like Ray and Kylo need a wayfinder, not a holocron, a wayfinder. Who knows, Kaylin? Who knows? I don't know. Okay. The sinking fields and force sensitive Finn. Mm-hmm. Oh boy. Okay. So I like the sinking fields because that's something that we actually saw in The Force Awakens too. So I didn't, I didn't mind that. I remember turning to you in the movie theater and being like, Harry Potter, this is Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. So yeah. The yeah, the sinking fields themselves are fine, but this is the first time that we get Finn, you know, thing. I have something to tell you, Ray, or I never told you, and then they sink, and then he never tells her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, force sensitive Finn is, I think we talked about this in our initial reaction, but it feels like I remember the first time we saw it, and you thought that Finn was trying to tell Ray that he had romantic feelings for her. Right. Mm-hmm. And then JJ and John both said that it was about his force sensitivity. But then Chris Terrio came out later and said that it could be either. <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> but force sensitive Finn, I think, is frustrating because it feels like it's trying to remedy kind of the, the quote unquote plot twist from The Force Awakens marketing that it wasn't Finn who was force sensitive. 
And this goes back to our whole discussion about how these characters aren't really talking to each other about important things because I'm not I'm not sure why Finn is hesitant or nervous to tell Ray about mm-hmm. this. You know, he seems very fine talking about his sensitivity to the Force with Janna. But for some reason, he can't talk to it about Ray or Poe, even though they're all relying on Ray in a large part because of her Force capabilities. And I think I can headcanon reasons why he might be nervous to tell her, maybe. <laughs> but I'm not sure why he wouldn't want to, as it would be another thing for them to bond over together. And then this just kind of goes back to the larger conversation, too, of like, oh, well, even though Ray wasn't a nobody, Finn, like, we don't know who Finn's parents are, but he still has the force. See, everyone can have the force, you know? Mm-hmm. And and this is one of those big things that is never actually resolved in the film, too. Well, it's, it just, it's not even confirmed that Finn is really force sensitive. It doesn't really get yeah, a exactly. full arc any sort well, of time. He, he, he feels her die in the force. I still, you know, Ray and him didn't even talk about it. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like. Yeah, no, I agree. It's not resolved. But I think it's confirmed that he's forced them yeah, in, within the film. Yeah. I think that fans, like big fans of Finn right now are debating whether or not it was confirmed in the film or not. Or if it was just kind of like mm. thrown a bone and then, you know, uh, like up, up for a debate in the same way that this whole you know, I have something to tell you, Ray, I never told you, is up for a debate. I just, what reasons would Finn not have to tell her? It's, mm, I don't know. I think that, like you said, I can probably headcanon that he was, like, nervous to tell her for some reason, because that can happen. But mm-hmm. I I still don't really see that all the way through, because I think that Finn and, in this trio dynamic, I think Finn and Ray have the strongest bond. Obviously, I mean, he feels her die. And I, I feel like they'd be open to each other about that, but maybe not because m- this movie also gives me no reason to think that Ray has told um, Finn about Kylo. Mm. So I don't know. <laughs> I think they're still concealing things from each other. And also Chris, Chris Terrio said that the whole thing about the, I have something to tell you, Ray could be about force sensitivity or it could also not, it could, it's up for your interpretation. It could be about his romantic feelings for Ray. I just, why is nothing even in this though, movie defined? Though, why? Even though Naomi Aki, I think, recently said that she was playing her relationship with Fit as romantic, like that it could be romantic. So, why is this boy's romantic interest just like juggled from person to person? It's, I literally, it's, it's just, like, it's just so unfair to the one. character of Finn. I don't, I, it, it, it really frustrates me. Finn is one of my favorite characters, and I feel like I, I feel like his hero's journey is uncom- incomplete. And, like most things about his journey are like completely undefined and i we've talked about this for a couple of episodes about force sensitive finn i would have loved to see it and i guess we do see it but it's not enough and the person that he needs to tell it to ray it doesn't even get any sort of screen time and i'm just like was this added later what is happening and why aren't these characters Mm -hmm. talking to each other this is this is the like the sin of star wars for me no one talks to each other and it's something that we have a whole episode about concealment. And I thought that, you know, this last one, the feelings would be in the open, the emotions would be out there, the whole family history would be out there, but everything is concealed instead. And I, it's, it's utterly frustrating to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, everything is, is kept concealed. Like, does, does Ray ever tell Finn that she's a Palpatine? 
I know. I guess he hears it from Kylo. Does he? I don't think anyone don't hears it. Yeah, I guess not. I don't think anyone hears it. In that hangar scene, it's just it's just him and her. So she never tells him she has force visions with Kylo. She never tells him he's a Palpatine. Well, she does She's say that he had a had a vision of the throne of the Sith with her and Ren with Kylo on it. it but that's yeah. a force bond. Excuse me. She never tells him about the force bond. At least not that we know. I'm sure something will come out that they did that they did talk about it, but should have been done here but whatever (laughs) i okay so moving on to a scene that i actually really like and actually comes from our conversation about secrets is i really do like the cave and healing scene that happens after the sinking fields um i really like what it says about ray i think that there's this implicit trust that finn has in ray and i think that um I, i think that you're anytime there's you're in star wars and we've said this before too and you get a cave scene i think you're supposed to stop and think about like what's coming to the surface here. And I think there's a lot of like contentions and secrets that are kind of bubbling up in this cave. Um, and I think it's really cool. I, I really do like that. Like I like the the Finn wanting to tell Ray something and then Finn being like, I'll tell you later. And then Poe po is like, when Poe's not here, which I think is a funny line. Um, mm-hmm. I like the way that Oscar delivers it. And I think that it really does get into the crux of any sort of um, contention between this this trio. And I really do think that this is where the cave, the cave is kind of where the truth comes out or enough truth that, uh, you know, certain parties in this trio and then also 3PO <laughs> um, are kind of stunned. And like I said, I really do like the implicit trust that Finn has in Rey, especially when um, – and I, I wonder if that even – you can chalk that up to even Finn's force sensitivity about being like, no, I think Ray has this under control. Like I can feel this within her. I think that she, she has this, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it's really interesting that there's like such a huge emphasis on bones. <laughs> there's, there's so much of this movie that's like really violent and grotesque and um, kind of over the top. And in, in my opinion, and that's just mine. I don't think ever, everyone agrees with that, but I think the shot of the bones and then you have Poe being like bones. I don't like bones, which is very Indiana Jones snakes. Why'd it have to be snakes? And <laughs> I, God. I, and I think that like even the scene in, in a way is kind of Indiana Jones esque. And um, I like it, but I think that this, if you're looking for any clues about whether or not Ben can come back in the end, um, I think there's always going to be a way, especially since there's a whole like one minute shot of bones and talking about bones and making sure that Ochi's dead. He's dead, dead. There's the bones. And uh, yeah, and this comes off of a festival that is about honoring and bringing back the dead. Okay, so moving on. Um, (laughs) The the snake healing is one of my favorite moments in the movie. I don't know about you, Caitlin, but... When this happened, I think that this is one of the quiet moments in the movie, too, where it was like, oh, my God, I'm number one, so happy that this is happening. We're on the heels of the Baby Yoda healing um, in in the Mandalorian and, and those things being connected. And it really just kind of goes into our theories that we've had for two years about how this is going to come come full circle and to see mm-hmm. to see ray do this to see ray kind of trust in her own abilities 
I don't know. I was really impressed and I love the scene. I actually really like the sound design, sound design in this scene too. Uh, I think that the the transfer of breath um, when she's transferring the life energy is really great. I think it's really cool to consider the symbolism and the idea of using a snake here instead of literally any other creature. Um, I think that snakes are symbols of healing. They're the symbol of rebirth and immortality and regeneration and eternity. And I think that in that way, it's like it's so on the nose, you know. Not only that, uh, Ray calls Ben a murderous snake in The Last Jedi, which mm-hmm. I think that in that time we were like, oh, my God, there's so much talk about snakes. And I think even in one of our episodes, we were like, well, you know, snakes, snakes are in Dagobah, too. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. And um, I think it's it's really to me, I see this as a pretty obvious metaphor for Ben, given the fact that Ray is later able to heal Ben after she kills him. And I I think that I don't know I, I when this was happening I I was like oh my god and it it really it kind of instills something in me about something that I love about Ray and this is this implicit compassion that she has for creatures and animals and I think that on other podcasts I've heard about how Ray kind of takes to to droids over like space horses and animals and other things like that um and i think that's true but here was a moment where i think that uh ray got kind of down and dirty in nature and Mm -hmm. i i really appreciate that i also think that there's another way to interpret the snake it doesn't necessarily have to be a snake i mean i don't I, i i don't remember if it's in the visual dictionary but um you can also kind of interpret this as almost a dragon. And we've talked a lot about the idea of the dragon. Joseph Campbell refers to the dragon as the ego and like the dark side of the ego. And in Revenge of the Sith, even you have um, this personification of the dragon as the dark side, the dragon inside of you. And in in the novelization, Anakin kind of lets the dragon breathe and gives it fire and everything. And if we can think about the snake as a dragon and you have Ray instead of fueling the fire and stoking it like Anakin does in Revenge of the Sith when he's so conflicted with the dark side, if you can kind of put the same metaphorical implications on this dragon here, Ray heals the dragon through compassion, which I think is perfectly, um, it perfectly fits into our heroine's journey. I think a woman then is able to heal <laughs> with love. And um, I think that's why this moment really hit for me so well, is that this is exactly how Rey defeats the darkness within, inside of her. It's with love. It's with compassion. And it really works for me on that level. Yeah, I think, if anything, I think it's almost too on the nose, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> yeah. But but overall, I mean, you said it perfectly about the symbolic layers to the snake and or the dragon. I think I tend to read it as the snake more than the dragon. But I think in comparison with the Revenge of the Sith novelization, reading it as the dragon is really interesting. And I would like to think there was that connection. I don't think there is. No, I, I, <laughs> I don't. Know, I think there is. I, I, I don't think I don't think it's an, an intentional connection to the dragon metaphor in Revenge of the Sith. No, I think it's a Campbellian link. Yes, yes, yes. Um. A lot of I feel like a lot. Unfortunately, I feel like a lot of the symbols and meaning that I pull from this movie is not intentional on like JJ and Chris's part. Um, I could be wrong about that, but it feels like that sometimes, unfortunately. But I do like you said, 
I like that it is this moment of like nature with Ray, and it's not just a droid because she does tend to like even when they're in the thinking field, she's not calling for Finn or Poe or Chewie. She's like, <laughs> like oh my god, BB-8, <laughs> which I think is really funny. But yeah, it, we brought up this in our reaction episode too. It, like this inherent compassion that she has is a direct callback to what we see in the Forces of Destiny episode, where she does very much the same thing, and it is this really nice quiet moment. And I think I like how Finn and Poe are just watching her do it and Chewie too. And Finn is like in awe of what she's doing. When you couple it with the fact that he like sees her do this really great thing through the force, but is still really hesitant to tell her about it. Again, I'm like, what, what is our reasoning there? But Poe, I think Poe is always like he, I, I interpret Poe as always kind of keeping Ray at arm's length with her force sensitivity. Like I think he has this kind of, uh suspiciousness about it um but this like quiet moment with the with the creature i think is really beautiful and 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 you know a snake shedding its skin being reborn of course is very metaphorical i really love the end of it the end of the scene too is one of my favorite parts of it when she says oh i just gave him a little bit i just transferred a little bit of life force to him Mm -hmm. And then BB-8 chirps and she said, no, you would have done the same. I think it's like that. It's just a really sweet moment. It felt very Ray to me. And it reminded me a lot of in The Force Awakens when she like puts his antenna back on and, you know, this is the way you should go. You like stay safe. All right. You can come with me. (laughs) You know, it's just it's a very sweet moment. And it does have very it is very symbolic of what is going to be coming down the line. And that's why I said it, it almost feels too on the nose. But overall, I think it's a beautiful it's a beautiful scene. And the ending in particular really sells it for me. I'm like, oh, this is Ray. Like, this is the Ray that I know and I love. Mm-hmm, exactly. And I think that that moment even comes back around with BB-8 and Dio when BB-8 does literally transfer energy into Dio to yeah. activate him. And I think that that is just kind of testament to the like healing power of compassion and sharing that knowledge. And mm-hmm. I'm with you. Like, it's like, oh, yeah, this is this is Ray. Um, yeah. So good. Yeah. Okay. So the next part we get to is a very strange scene. <laughs> And it's Ray and Kylo in the desert, which is the one minute scene that we saw in the very first trailer for The Rise of Skywalker, which is actually longer <laughs> in the teaser trailer than it is here in the film. <laughs> yep. This sequence, this this again is a question of what is, you know, you, you have this saying on the show a lot of like, what is the function of such and such in the scene, in the sequence, in the overall story? And what is the function of this tie whisperer scene? Because, you know, for so long, a lot of us thought it was training because he's not shooting at her. Or we thought, like, there's something else that they're coming for. Like, he's just meeting her there, maybe. Like, there's something bigger going on here because it seems like a very important scene. And it wasn't actually mm-hmm. and and more than it not just being an important scene it's a confusing scene too the fact that he doesn't shoot at her but she slices off one of the wings it explodes but he's okay <laughs> um it's just like it's it, i don't really know what the point of it is rather than just to show off her flipping over it and that she has these really cool force jumping 
power, you yeah. know? Um, I think it raises a lot more questions of like, oh, he just like walked out of that unscathed. Okay. And I guess he's just getting to her to then do this test to see just how powerful she is. The whole thing, like this this whole sequence is very odd to me with Finn and Chewie and Kylo and Ray. Like Finn just watches Chewie be taken. He doesn't do anything about it. He doesn't run back and tell Poe so they can try to do something. And then we have the and the thing is the first time I saw it, I really actually liked this like seeing them both control the ship i was like whoa (laughs) this is like some crazy power that's going on here Mm -hmm. and then when she explodes it and she like jumps back i love the expression on her face i love the expression on kylo's face i think like they're both genuinely horrified and i guess it's kylo confirming for himself that what palpatine has told him and that she is a palpatine and it's like oh yes only those Palpatines using that Force Lightning. <laughs> <laughs> and I-, I like that scene. It's weird to me how they don't really talk at all. Yeah, I know. It, right? They don't say anything in it, right? No, it's very bizarre. No. I think that yeah. to your point about like what does this serve, I'm still trying to like rationalize it in my head. But later when Kylo's like, I pushed you in the desert because I needed you to see it. Which I'm like, what your intention was. What was your intention? You really why, thought that she was going to use the force lightning? <laughs> I, why, did, I, why did he push her to see it before she knew it? You know, it's like if the, I, I can buy that intention, but why would he not tell her, Ray, you're a Palpatine? And then she'll be like, no, I'm not. And then they would have this meeting and he'd be like, look, you are. You use force lightning. <laughs> the order. It's just a little confusing. Yeah. Even, I, even so, I think that I think that she could be. I don't know. I think that there's a way to unpack this as like, okay, here's here's the TIE fighter. Here she's going to jump over the TIE fighter and like take him out. And after that scene, I'm like, does she think he's, does she think she killed him? Or does she like feel that he's totally fine? Because obviously he emerges like two seconds later from the fire looking unscathed, completely unscathed. Either way, there's no reaction. (laughs) Yeah, no reaction. And I think that when they both are kind of fighting over this transport, it's, to me, it's just like a. This is going to sound so bad, but it's a copy of the fighting over the the lightsaber in the Last Jedi without the emotional stakes, and I think that yeah. it, if if it, especially well, watching guess, it a second time, thinking that Chewbacca was inside of it, in the first time it was like, oh my god, she's got to save Chewbacca. Oh my god, she she fried Chewbacca, but I <laughs> I think that after you've seen it once again like once you've seen it the second time you're like okay so what is even happening here they're fighting over what like i don't i don't know what i'm saying i'm just saying that i don't think it has the same emotional impact (laughs) that fighting over the legacy saber does and her explosion of lightning i think would have been more powerful in any other situation and i would have much preferred a conversation what even kylo just being like see see or something like literally something like that instead they just kind of look at each other she doesn't know she's a palpatine but kylo knows she's a palpatine at this juncture yeah and you you have to wonder is if does this scene kind of serve more for kylo as seeing what is true and what is not true rather than ray but it's not told like this scene isn't told from his perspective nothing is told from kylo's point of view so it's yeah it 
it it becomes a little muddied where it's like who is the serving our story should always be serving ray and i think that her being horrified by this act that she committed is actually pretty good for the story um it kind of goes to what i was saying about her showing her darkness but um i i don't know i feel like it's not really resolved in the same way that i would have expected yeah yeah i mean and this is our first death fake out one of many <laughs> Mm-hmm. In this film, like you said earlier, this is a very, uh, like, gory. It's a very morbid film. And it's unfortunate that every death is a fake out except for the actual last death, which could should have been a fake out, too, <laughs> if we're following a pattern <laughs> in this movie. But guess not. <laughs> guess not. Guess Ye not. Ye old switcheroo of the transports. Yeah. It's- again, <laughs> It's like the 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 rewatchability of this scene it, because because we're it's not emotionally because we don't have any moment between Ray and Kyla or even Ray and Finn prior to the transport battle of them like talking about their feeling. There's no emotional investment in this because none of them share anything with each other. And then Chewie dies, but the second time you know that he's not dead, so mm-hmm. it's not. It's not great. That said, it is a joy to see Chewie again. And I think that we should mention that here because I'm sure people listening are like, well, they don't even care about Chewie. I really do care about Chewie. And I was really oh, yeah. upset thinking that Chewie had died in this moment. And I was like, well, he can't die in this moment. It's not as that's not ceremonial at all. Well, let me be it- a horrible person and be like, I because I had this theory a long time ago before The Last Jedi came out. I was like, what if Ray? Uh, this is in the conversation of redemption. I was like, what if Ray kills Luke Skywalker? Will we be invested in her redemption? in the same way we are or are not invested in Kylo's redemption because she was mm-hmm. presented to us as a good character in the beginning and Kylo was presented to us as a bad character in the beginning. And so when I saw this happen, of course I was devastated because I love Chewbacca, um, but I was like, oh my God, like, did Ray like, is this going, like, are we, like, I was thinking, I was like, oh, it wasn't Luke Skywalker. Like, we're getting the same train of thought, though, but it's with Chewbacca. And this is where I thought of, like, exploring that dark side or coming to terms with it, with, like, Rey coming to terms with she doing, her doing this horrible thing, and Kylo also coming to terms with him doing this horrible thing, too, to Han, of course. But no. I almost think that they were close enough to do that, because even I, in the conversation with Finn and, Rey, Finn and Rey right after it, when she was like, that power came from me, and it's clear she's like super disturbed by it, and she's like, Finn, there are things you don't know, and Finn's like, well, just tell me, just tell me, and I think that's kind of like, well, Finn, you got to talk to her too, you know? I know. Just, and, I, mm-hmm. and then that's where she reveals the whole Throne of the Sith vision, which... Guys, we were robbed. I cannot believe we didn't see this this vision of her. I we saw the image, but it was like what point zero zero five seconds in, in in that shared shared vision of the when Kylo touches the helmet and she's training. I we see her with like no eyes, um, and I it's super cool. But I'm like, where is Kylo? Because that's the whole point of the vision, and we've been blessed with so much good fan art. Like truly blessed, like ugh, chef's kiss. Yeah. But I, I am still like, well, it would have been pretty inf- impactful to see that before you know I'm told it. This yeah. is again this whole idea of telling and not showing. That's mm-hmm. the like really the main fault that I have with the Rise of Skywalker is that things are told to the audience, things are told to Ray, but the idea of you know, she doesn't necessarily see it or we don't see it as the audience. So like, is it even believable? And that's kind of what I get at when I'm like, did Palpatine even die? Like we're told that cloning is a thing. 
how am I supposed to believe that that's actually Palpatine? It could be anyone. Oh, really God. confusing. Yeah. I. Mm, mm, mm. This also would have been a good moment for them to actually talk about the events of The Last Jedi in the angsty conversation that I wanted for two years. Yeah. <laughs> but it didn't happen. <laughs> um, <laughs> what I what I wish had been explored more in this film, too, in, in conversation with Rey exploring her own dark side, is Finn and Poe being witness to this, too. And there's that scene later on where Ray mind trick Jedi mind tricks the guards, right? And Poe mm-hmm. says, "Oh, I wonder if she ever does that. Like, does she ever do that to us?" And it's played for laughs, and I think it is funny. But then, like, they see her literally force lightning and explode Chewbacca, and no one has this question of, "Wow, like, what could she do to us?" You know, there's not that other side of that. And I, like, thought of this horrible – not horrible example, but just funny – of, like, Elsa and Frozen when she nearly kills Anna. Like, she feels horrible about it and, like, literally conceals herself away <laughs> for years mm-hmm. and years and years. But but Ray doesn't do that at all and the other two don't really – like, they don't – they don't – they're not fearful of Ray. And you could almost see this thing, like, if if they had been fearful of Ray, it would have pushed her to isolate herself more and more and more. And it would have driven her to this really dark place where she would have had to confront it there too. But she doesn't. And they don't – they don't seem super alarmed that she was the one that killed Chewie. It was just like, oh, we have to keep going or else Chewie's death is in vain. It's not Chewie's death. It's Chewie's murder mm-hmm. <laughs> that was in vain. And of course, you know, of course I think that – and then I think too that this could go back to that conversation of Finn being nervous to tell Ray about what he knows. But then also if she's like so afraid of her powers here, he could have been someone too to give her hope of like, no, 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 like you have this all wrong. Like I have the force too and it's like it's good. Like I'm using it for good. You are too. Like this is horrible and like what happened and we'll get through this together because now I understand what it means to be sensitive to the force. And like I feel it now too. And I like – I'll walk beside you through this, you know? Mm-hmm. But no. Yeah, that would have been great. Yeah, it's just – it's weird to me that they're they're not at all alarmed at what has just happened. Of course, we see Finn be like, Ray, we got to get in the transport. But then when they actually do have that quiet moment, they're not actually talking about what just happened. I mean, they are, but they don't really get into it at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Poe doesn't seem bothered by it at all. He's not like worried. Yeah. He's not. He he spends so much of this film angry at at Ray for for different things and to, at different levels, but he's never like afraid of her, even though he just saw her blow up Chewbacca's transport. Right. Mm. Yeah. I have to say the hand holding is cute. I like it. Again, this is right after Chewie was just exploded by Ray. Yeah, and I think it's. I think that's fine. I think it's okay <laughs> that they have this moment of holding hands, figuring out what to do next. I think it's cute. Um, I wish Poe wasn't so flippant about it, but I really do like it. And it really just it makes me think hands are a language and made they me are. happy. They are. Yeah. And I think this is a moment where I'm like, okay, I can buy the trio. But again, I wish Poe wasn't so flippant. <laughs> yeah. I just wish there was like this moment where it was like genuine. Yes, we're doing this together. Like is super genuine. Like we're going to hold hands and it's going to be cute and it's not going to be played off as, you know, feminine laughs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Okay, so then we finally arrive on Kajimi. And before then, BB-8 activates Dio, which we kind of already discussed. I remember thinking Dio was super cute until I learned that he was voiced by J.J. Abrams. <laughs> 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 and then I was like, uh. Well, there's a man. couple of things that are interesting about Dio. And I think Dio is really cute. I do think, and I really I do like think the Dio whole, is cute. No, thank you. Yeah. And I like the, you know, I, I think Sad. it's super adorable. Yeah. But the whole implicit behind him being like happy sad it's like jj literally jj abrams are you telling me how i'm supposed to feel during this moment yeah. because can you stop yeah <laughs> no he is. he is yeah at the end with the celebration and dio's like happy i'm like yeah no i got it <laughs> yeah i'm supposed to be happy but i'm i'm really mourning my favorite character yeah, bro. Yeah. number one i'm not happy it. number two please be quiet <laughs> yeah. and it's just it's just funny to consider that you have a director who is voicing a droid at this moment, who is kind of telling you how each scene is supposed to feel. <laughs> and it's I think so, he was really cute. It's so meta. But it's funny. In like it's meta. the worst kind of way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember. It was, yeah. Yeah. D- Dio, Dio is cute, but it's J.J. Abrams <laughs> telling you how to feel about <laughs> this movie. Um, so Kajimi, you know, they are stealing kids for the stormtroopers. Again, this is just one of many things that is just not followed through on in any shape or form in this film. It's like sh- so shoved into the background, but given like weird amounts of time. It's it's so strange, I think. Like the fact that we spend a lot of time with them outside watching the stormtroopers go door to door and looking for children. And then we have a lot of time of talking to Jana about her past. But it's ne- like the fact that it still doesn't feel resolved at all is, I think, really telling about how this movie spent time. Um, so then we move on to – well, I, you have a lot to say. The, the stolen children is like a big plot point for you. So do you have anything else to oh say about God. that? I think that this is another like egregious crime to me. I think that you know the first line in the sequel trilogy is this will begin to make things right. And I I just continue to feel really uncomfortable ever since they removed Finn's helmet and I'm supposed to feel, and I do feel, extreme compassion for a conflicted stormtrooper. And I feel like every time I watch like the violent murder of the stormtrooper and they, you know, hammer into the fact that, you know, these were child soldiers being rounded up and even by showing it again in episode nine, I don't understand why they did this if they were not going to bring this full circle. But instead, in the end of the movie, we have Finn and Jana like blowing up. I I guess it's not necessarily First Order Stormtroopers, but it is because even the Sith Troopers apparently are children bred mm-hmm. for battle, according to the Visual Dictionary. So here we have, again, child <sighs> soldiers. And I'm just like... You're not going to resolve the child soldier thing. Only Finn and Jana and Jana's friends get to have that sort of resolution. Seriously, not even. There's no yeah. passing on what you know, passing on what you what you learn. There's no the 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 idea of you know it's a feeling. It's you know there's I love the idea of the Force Awakening in Jana and in Finn almost at the same time as Rey and them defecting and feeling this need to get out of this oppressive system and knowing that there is always another path. And that path is hard and that path is arduous, but it's something that can be done because you know that there's a feeling that this is not right. I love that. It's just not brought full circle. We only deal with that with Finn and Jana. And it's really only told to us. 
And then the end of the movie instead is just, you know, bombs and blowing up and shooting and all these things. And I'm just like, this is not how it should be. Mm-hmm. You know, if if you wanted to forget that in the past, maybe you wouldn't have shown, you know, screams and parents having to hand over their kids on Kajimi like you did. And I just I find it deeply unsettling and uncomfortable. And I'm sure there are people listening who are like, well, you're like going a little too hard. Like you need to calm down. But and it, I just don't think this even needed to be in the Stormtrooper Rebellion sense. I just felt almost zero resolution to this idea that there are stolen kids, stolen kids throughout the galaxy. I think this is a major theme in the sequel trilogy, and it feels unresolved. Well, I mean, we see this in Resistance, too. They talk about brain scraping. It's just, it's, it could have, it should have been, it should have been the plot B, you know, of this whole thing. And the greatest thing about Finn is that he was this stormtrooper gone rogue. And that was the first time we'd really seen that. And it was ridiculous. Like, it was so cool. And then that he doesn't think that anyone else could be like him, even after he learns that there were other people like him (laughs) when Mm -hmm. he meets Janna. And, and I've seen other people kind of talk about this. And I think it's a really interesting thread to pull on is Unfortunately, the idea that like, oh, well, if Jana and her crew are also force sensitive and Finn is force sensitive, then you might be able to infer that like only force sensitive people like were able to defect from the First Order and like lay down their weapons because they like had the force, like a, a heightened sensitivity to the force that led them to make that decision, but no. not everyone else. And I'm like, I think that's a fair interpretation. I don't know if I hold it. Is it is a fair but interpretation, I, but that, I feel like that's so cruel. Yeah. yeah the idea no, that agree. only you can only make a choice for the better if you're kind of gifted with this like cosmic power. Yeah, exactly. I think that I, resistance hasn't ended yet at the time of recording, but I really hope we see this with Tam. And I don't think Tam is force sensitive. So well, I... Uh, maybe I'm, in the last chapter know. she will be, just like Finn. Yeah, I just... I don't know. I don't know, man. It is really hugely disappointing to me and i i feel like in the laundry list of things that i think that can be dealt with in episode 10 if they ever choose to make that um this has to be it they went so over the top with the whole stolen kids thing it's in every book it's in every single piece of sequel trilogy medium right i'm not wrong about this and yet it's truly unresolved. Yeah, it's just it's especially like within this film too. The fact that Finn finds other people that have a similar background as him, he there's no discussion of like, oh, we could talk to them or we should try to like set your blasters to stuff. I don't know. It just it could have been like so many things in this film. It, it could have been it could have gone a lot of different ways. And the fact too that there's just so much crammed into this film, this is why nothing feels resolved because there is just so much, you know? And if they had even had one line from Finn, like if if this couldn't have been in any plot, right? If if we had made Kyle and Ray the A plot and then, you know, finding allies is the B plot, okay? And there there isn't room for this stolen ch- children plot. They could have had one line from Finn about it and then you could have resolved that in extra canon material, which I suppose they still could. But, like, that would assume that the plot A and B, the plot A plot and B plot were resolved in this imaginary movie when nothing is resolved in this movie. Like, none of the plots are resolved. And... So all of these things that they built up are shoehorned in in these in these weird places. It's like they're just like 
picking and choosing where they're going to put these moments and these plot threads in. And then it nev- nothing ever comes full circle with any of them. And this is this is one of the biggest ones. Yeah, even just you mentioning if if Finn was like set your set it to stun, I would have felt really satisfied with that. I would have been like, I don't know if you okay, would have felt understand. satisfied, but you would have felt. Better. I wouldn't have felt. I would have felt better. Yeah. Yes, I. I again, I've mentioned this before. I mentioned this in their trailer discussion because I was uncomfortable then when Finn and Poe are jumping over the bodies of the stormtroopers that they've killed on the Star Destroyer. I'm like. Was no care thought about this? The fact that you have a former stormtrooper that is murdering his fellow compatriots. Who were brainwashed and stolen from family. Who were brainwashed, stolen. Literally. Like, (laughs) really? No care? No thought is done at that? It's It's because he's force sensitive. Oh, my God. I can't. I I really just – I. We got, we have to move on because I get really, really frustrated and honestly deeply sad. Yeah. Okay, so Zori. Um, I honestly don't want to spend a lot of time on Zori. <laughs> um, I like Zori. I, you know, I think Carrie Russell did a great job. I think her eyeliner game is on point. <laughs> um, True. But again, it, like <laughs> Zori Bliss is like, yes, Poe is not gay. <laughs> <laughs> that's like why Zori and Bliss is here to be like I laugh because I cry yeah like Poe is not gay look at this woman he wants to kiss did you know he wants to kiss her he wants to kiss her she doesn't want to kiss him but he very much wants to kiss her <laughs> and it's it's bad because I like I like some of the moments with Zori um, I like the moment with Ray when she says not that you care but I think you're okay and Ray says I care again this is that's a line where I'm like ah oh, yes this is Ray like this is Ray um, mm-hmm. but everything else, I, I don't like the Kijimi side adventure at all. Again, this is just like another MacGuffin of, we got the dagger. We don't have the wayfinder. Gotta translate it. C-3PO can read it, but we have to override him. And to override him, we have to kill him, <laughs> you know, and we have to go to Kijimi. It's just, it's so convoluted it's insane and like Kajimi brings up interesting things as far as like the colonies and you know their past but it's not what are the colonies what are they I don't know I don't know I don't know what they are um it's just we could have taken Zori Bliss out and they still could have gotten to Babu Frick the same way that they got to the Master Codebreaker. Like they could have just called Maz, asked for a reference, and she would have referenced Babu Frick and we could have gotten there. But instead it's like, so no, Zori's got to get us there because Poe wants to kiss Zori. <laughs> and and there's now a dark backstory that doesn't make any yeah, canonical you know, sense Poe is, Poe. Poe is a spice runner. Not only is that stereotypical, but of like – Latinos in film and in TV, but it's just it's not necessary for him because Finn Finn never like Finn's the one that's pestering Poe about this, and he finds out, and then there's and he's like, oh my god, you were a spice runner, and then there's never any resolution of you were a spice runner, but I still love you, you know. And Poe's like, you were a stormtrooper, like Poe even says, you're a stormtrooper, you're a scavenger, like why are we we could do this all day? <laughs> yeah. It's a funny line. Again, it's not meaningful. Yeah, I, I do like the line though. I think I it's do, funny. I, do I laugh. Think it's funny. In the I do think it's funny. But in in like once we start snowballing all of these things together, I'm like, where are we? I want off this ride. <laughs> um, and that being said, I don't like Babu Frank. <laughs> I'm like one of seven oh people that don't like. <laughs> we're losing. Fall. I know. I know. People <laughs> just like we're like. Well, I got to turn this off. 
<laughs> I I don't like Babu Frick. Um, he just wasn't the character for me. I was like, if I got a pick, I'm a pick Claude. <laughs> if I'm like, <laughs> I like Babu. I'm gonna say it. I like Babu. My parents really liked Babu, and that was, gave me some joy. And it made me like it's Babu. Funny, more. I do like how um, C3PO is like. This is my oldest friend, Babu. <laughs> It's so funny. It's very funny. It's very <laughs> funny. But uh, yeah, we could have we could have cut out all of Kijimi and just gotten Babu on onto the Millennium Falcon. He could have done it or their Ochi ship. I forgot we're on Ochi ship, not the Falcon. And we mm-hmm. could have gotten him on the Falcon some or oh God on Ochi ship somehow. Could have done the whole same thing and saved off like fifteen minutes. But you know, Poe wants to kiss. Zori. So it does have a really the, like the moment with them on the rooftop is really nice. They win by making you think you're we talked alone. about that before. Yeah. But it's it I really, really like that. But scene. it's try it's trying to be it's trying to be the rose line from the last Jedi, you know? It really is. It really is. It really and, is. Okay, so this Star Destroyer. So when Ray then feels that Chewbacca is alive, I liked that moment. Mm-hmm. Um and it's like a joyful moment. And I just genuinely love the whole interplay of you know Kylo Ren's Star Destroyer showing up on on top of Kijimi, Rey being below, and then them kind of switching places. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, Kylo then being like, oh my god. Like, th- I'm skipping ahead, but oh my god, she's in my bedroom. Mm-hmm. His bedroom that looks <laughs> so good. very different from his bedroom in The Last Jedi. I'm fine with that. I think it's a different place. It's okay. A different I think ship. That it is. Okay. Yeah. It's a different ship, and it is... Designed differently. I really like the design. I think it's like majorly sci-fi. I think that I can't remember. I, I could be misquoting, but I think that there are certain elements of it that are two, 2001 A Space Odyssey, which I think is really cool. And from an artistic standpoint, I think it's really neat. I also think it's quite symbolic that his room is totally shrouded in light, almost to the point where he has to like cover himself up with the mask and everything in order to exist inside of it. Mm. It's so bright. Um, in the opposite is kind of true in The Last Jedi when he is kind of surrounded in the darkness. But he's unmasked. And when we, yeah, and when he's unmasked. So I think it's interesting. Um, I have mixed feelings about this Force Bond, honestly. So um, on the one so hand, I. I really like it. Um, I like them, like these these items spilling into their spaces while they're fighting. On the other hand, Literally, the thesis statement of the Force Bond was that Ryan wanted Kylo and Rey to talk and not be able to fight. <laughs> and I, th- mm-hmm. I think that was really effective in The Last Jedi, obviously, as a fan of that movie. And then that's just kind of thrown by the wayside here. And I could have been okay with it, but the fact that they destroyed Vader's helmet and it's – With no emotional significance. None. No commenting, nothing yeah, it's, about it. That, that, that is what kind of kills this scene for me. And also, of course, the they sold you to protect you. Oof. <laughs> they sold you to protect you is Are there no orphanages so interesting. in the galaxy? <laughs> I have seen a tweet and I don't remember who wrote it. And I think you sent it to me, Keelan, about um how that line, if you want to, you know, think real hard about it and rationalize it in your brain, because I just I it's it's poorly written. I I think it's interesting the concept that from Ben's point of view, perhaps that's what happened with, you know, Leia and Han sending him to Luke's. They sent you to, to Luke's temple to protect you. They, you know, 
they gave up on you to protect you. All those kind of things I think that you can kind of think about in context of that line. It, just like with so many conversations between Kylo and Ray, often what Kylo is saying is projecting himself, on yeah. from his own experience onto Ray. And um, yeah, I think that that's fair, a, a fair judgment of that line. I just think it's really messy. And it also like doesn't really make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. In what way is there a monetary exchange in order to protect? And then also like drinking money. Where does the whole drinking money come in if he never lied? It's it's really weird. And I do like this scene, though. I like how Ray is kind of suppressing a lot of trauma and emotions and how Kylo is kind of stoking that, which I think is, you know, it, it's villainous, obviously, um, of like, remember, remember who you are, remember. And I think that it it doesn't come from a good place, but instead of it does unlock something within her that she clearly wants to continue to know, especially at the end when he's like, I'll come and tell you. It's just- <laughs> <laughs> and and then when they see each other in the hangar later, you know, Ray's like, so tell me. So she wants to know. She she has those memories deep within, but they're clouded and she doesn't have the full it's picture. It's frustrating because it goes it, – it, I hate being that person of like, it refutes The Last Jedi. But I think it does because – It does refute yeah, The Last Jedi. Yeah, and I, I hate thinking that way because I know that – that Chrysera has been like, no, we didn't refute the last Jedi. And I'm like, well, <laughs> I don't know if I agree with you, Chrysera. <laughs> <laughs> but of her saying, like, of Kylo saying, like, you know who your parents are. And she did. She was just repressing that trauma. But the fact that she has to ask him, again, this is this is Ray's story revolving around another man. Like, she has to go, like, she has uh-huh. to wait for Kylo to get there in order to tell her what she presumably already knows, but I guess doesn't know because she seems shocked that, you know, it's not even like a situation like with Leia at the end of Return of the Jedi where she's like, I always knew, you know? Mm-hmm. She doesn't get that moment. She has to be told it from someone else, from another man, that her power doesn't come from her. It comes from another man so that she can finish another man's hero's journey. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> it just, it, it's, ugh. I just, it, it makes it so muddled. It was like, we don't know what name to give Ray, so we're just going to give her every name she's biologically a palpatine granddaughter but her parents they are nobodies because they they just wanted to live their own you know like peasant lifestyle but they had to sell her to protect her and she didn't want to be either of those people so she decided to be a skywalker you have his power could possibly be i think that's the most ridiculous and insulting line in all of the rise of skywalker yeah you don't just have his power. You don't just have power. You have his power. You're his granddaughter. You are a Palpatine. Do you think that Adam was like gagging when he read that line and had to say I think it? He had to. I think he had to. Ben, I don't. This is. I. I have. I have a tinfoil conspiracy theory that I know is a crazy conspiracy theory, but I really don't think this film was filmed with Ray as Palpatine. I think that. Well, it's interesting like- because I don't think that. I don't think it's that crazy given the fact that no one knew that Luke was Vader's son except for Mark Hamill, you know? But he, so knew, he, he knew on set. He knew on yeah. set. I don't, yeah, I don't but, think well, that before reshoots happened, I don't think this film – I don't think the original version of this film, she was Palpatine. I mean, I I agree because there's nothing really in the movie that tells me that she, did, she was, you know? Yeah. But I, I still – I just – 
the way that they say you have his power, it just totally the, the scene is extremely framed just like Empire Strikes Back, almost to the point where she looks behind her like she's gonna jump too, in the same way that Luke jumps. And I I do like the framing of, you know, from above, like way above, you see, you know, two figures, uh like black and white. It's almost like a yin and yang i like that and they're circling each other um but when this line is delivered and it's a shocking line it's supposed to evoke empire strikes back and that shocking line moment with luke and vader and he screams and and we all meme it to death but it's an important character moment exactly and i think that her kind of even looking to jump i i don't know it's pretty pretty painful but the thing is is that from this moment on it's not the whole fact that Rey is a Palpatine isn't really about Rey. It's about ascribing her power mm-hmm. and putting a label on how she has the force. And I just, I honestly find that so insulting Yeah, because I don't, I don't think that this was necessary at all. It ha- it means nothing to Rey. I, I think that this was like a hotly debated theory before. I, Caitlin and I have watched YouTube videos about Ray being a Palpatine for years, right? Um, way back in the, the Force mm-hmm. Awakens age, it was interesting because of Ray's race theme also kind of reflected the Palpatine's theme, and um, I always think that's kind of interesting. But I, I, I still, for me, it's not an interpersonal journey for her. It's like this line even says it you don't have you don't just have power you have his power it's not if we get rid of those lines and it's you're his granddaughter you're a palpatine i don't even know if that would have been better but it doesn't put a label on how she's powerful it makes me think of all those stupid asinine questions that jj abrams and ryan johnson and every and daisy gets asked about you know how does she have the force how does she unlock the force and i think it's like well she's really powerful she was chosen she's an instrument of the cosmic force Mm -hmm. that's it she shares a connection with Kylo Ren. They share a lot of um, share a lot of the poses and abilities to use the lightsaber because of their shared experiences and the fact that they're two parts of a whole. That's enough of an explanation for me. Clearly, it wasn't enough of an explanation for so many people, and they had to kind of submit to those people in in this movie. And I don't think I'll to. ever forgive they it. To. They didn't have to. They chose, they chose to. to. Yes, you're right. And I I find it, you know the line you have his power this is a story this is a woman's journey and we're ascribing a power to a man and i i find it extremely insulting yeah it's just it's i remember first hearing it and i was like no <laughs> no <laughs> i was like you're telling me i have to deal with ben solo dying and ray is a palpatine i was like this is honestly worst case scenario <laughs> <laughs> I was like, never in my wildest dreams would I have envisioned her being a Palpatine. It just, it just, it, it, like I said, it, it's honestly the most egregious thing I think this movie did. And I, th- this is the thing that I can't compartmentalize about this film is what it did to Ray and making her a Palpatine is like the worst decision, I think to come out of the sequel trilogy and this line just encapsulates pretty much all of the problems with this movie. (laughs) Like everything comes back, I think to this line. And I've heard so many people say that like they're on board with this film until you get to this reveal 
that she's a Palpatine. Everyone's like, what? Uh-huh. <laughs> what? And, and then the fact that she, again, doesn't ever address it, it just – it's so insulting to the character that she never – like, Vader – the Vader reveal works because it's the middle <laughs> and and Luke gets time to deal with it. Ray does not get I don't understand I just I don't understand why we're having this big of a plot twist in the ninth hour. Literally the ninth hour. <laughs> the ninth <laughs> episode. It it makes no sense to me because I said this before too. If this and, and I I was a Ray Kenobi person, okay? Like <laughs> I I liked the duality of of these families being intertwined throughout generations. And that would it would have extended to a Palpatine lineage as well, but it is not given any time of day, as far as Rey herself is concerned, as far as her being this other side of the coin to Kylo and him being a Skywalker and uh, a Vader. You know, it's not. It's just not given any time, and it's just. I don't understand how someone was like all of these people involved in this in writing this were like yes. We should make her a Palpatine at this juncture <laughs> in the films, you know? And it was because they were listening to so many different voices and they chose they chose to give in, I think, and make make her have to come from somewhere. And like you said, I, I don't think I'll ever get over it. And it's going to really color, unfortunately, the next times I watch the next time I watch The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi. And it like that that upsets me so much. And I had I had this running metaphor. This is part of my Kintsugi meta of Ray being the accidental fracture in this whole story because everyone else, literally every other character, most of the other characters that we encounter in Star Wars are connected through this like very complicated family tree of like Jedi and marriages and and births and things like that. And Palpatine has these very specific roles in the main characters' lives. But then Rey existed on this other plane and she wasn't connected to any of it. And it was why she was able to make such a big difference. That's what I wanted. It was why she was able to make such a big difference because she wasn't bogged down by all of this history that had come before. And there was that balance with Kylo being bogged down by that history and Rey not being bogged down by it and them able to come together and say something new about the Force, say something new about light and darkness and balance and create something new that would stop the cycle. But... I don't know. It feels like the cycle is not stopped. And Ray ended up being related to a Palpatine. So she's just in this whole mess herself, too. And now I'm going to have to sit through canon material of who her parents were and how Palpatine got a grandmother and had a baby. And then that baby had another baby. And then that was Ray. And then she went on this journey. And you can read all about it in the sequel trilogy. And I just, like I said, I I never expected to feel this horrible about Ray's character coming out of the Rise of Skywalker, and I really, I really do. And this, I, I'm with you. This just like encapsulates all of it. Hey everyone, Charlotte here. Caitlin and I recorded for about six hours when we talked about The Rise of Skywalker. So we have split this up into two parts. So the part that you just heard, and then also the next part, which is on the feed right now. So right after you finish this episode, you can go and listen to the next one. Thank you. Thank you.